1: Did you see that memory about this?
0: Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this.
1: Don't you see what this means? Welcome to episode 52 of your Missing the Point podcast, where we discuss the weird, the wonderful, and the downright bizarre aspects of life, as we have conversations with people from all over the world. Today I'm joined by a guest who has recently taken a trip of a lifetime, a young guy with an objectively and intellectually interesting take on many topics, someone I generally have a yarn with, and enjoy myself every time doing so. Back from the subcontinent, let us welcome Foz the Aussie. Welcome Fozzie. (laughs) G'day, bro. How are you, mate? I'm good, dude. I've been hanging out for this conversation since you said you were leaving for <laughs> India. And you are in India a lot longer than I thought you'd be. I thought you wouldn't come back at one point.
0: My, my brother thought I would only last a week. He's like, there's no way you'll last more than a week. You'll get there, you'll hate it, and you'll just leave. And I'm like, I'll show you, mate. I'll show you. <laughs> just for yeah.
1: context, how long were you gone for? How long were you in uh, India? Three months. That's yeah. a good bloody stint, man. Yeah. Most people do like four weeks overseas and that's a long holiday. So yeah. you've certainly dug your heels in, showed yeah, your brother well,
0: up. Yeah, well, I mean, I wasn't uh, I wasn't planning on, I mean, eventually I would return, but the initial plan was to do like sort of six to 12 months um, and then go from there. But uh, unfortunate circumstances sort of intervened, some personal stuff that I had to come back to Australia for, but... Um, yeah, it's all, it's all done and dusted now. And yeah, you know, like the experience was, wow well, I, we could talk for hours about it. It was a crazy experience sort of to, you know, sort of the humble beginnings of first coming into India, having a complete, having a complete culture shock on the first day, breaking down, crying. <laughs> <clears throat> and it was over the strangest, something that I think most people would look at and just be like, I don't know how you just like broke down and have a cry over this as a cultural shock. But so I got in, uh, it's like 5th of October about 11 PM at night. I had no Indian rupees on me. I had no internet on me. The guy that I met at the Ho Chi Minh airport, cause there was a layover in Vietnam. Uh, his name was Raj and him and me ended up sitting next to each other and we, conversed for like the next, I don't know, like three and a half hours or something. And, um, he sorted me out with getting a a cab to where my hotel was and on the way to the hotel, it's hard to sort of like, it's hard to express the, the visuals that I, that I witnessed that night, but just imagine, or just envision like pitch black in many places sort of from the airport to the main city and anywhere where there was light trickling was trickling down, like through alleyways and little like rural pockets where all I could see was some homeless people like sleeping on the streets. And it just, and I just begun having this sort of like slow building existential fucking crisis I was
1: literally going to say existential. (laughs) Oh
0: man, it was weird. And then I get to the hotel, uh, put on my bags, get it all sorted, get in the room um, and I slept reasonably well, I guess. The next morning I woke up and I opened up my balcony window. I looked out the window and the first thing I see uh, is a, a, a homeless couple with four kids and two of the kids are oh, two, two, of the babies were, I don't know, less than less than from, I don't know, two years old, maybe like six months old, something like that. And, um, <clears throat> when I'd seen that something just clicked in my head, I don't know what it was, but it's like, you are like Toto. We're not in Kansas anymore.
1: And this like, was in Vietnam, right? No, this was in, it's this
0: in was India? in, this was in India. Um, And I, after sort of like watching over the next like sort of two minutes what was happening and it wasn't anything existential. Like the mother like walked to a different section and she grabbed like some steel pots that were on like the side of the street. Um, I assumed to like set up a breakfast, which later on when I ended up looking, that was the case. She was ended up feeding her children rice. Um, But in that moment, like when I'd seen it, I don't know, something in me just like clicked and I started crying. I don't know why. I cried for about five, 10 minutes. Um, And then I had a phone call from a friend of mine and we had a great conversation. And then after that conversation, I looked back out the window and I saw the same homeless couple feeding their kids. And then I sort of readjusted my thoughts because I was panicking. I'm like, why the fuck am I here? What am I doing? I'm so out of my zone. I've never left Australia before. Like, so to go... And it's not like I'm going from, like, Australia to England or Australia to America or something like that where I can acclimate much easier. I've gone from... And it's not like I went to Mumbai. It's not like I went to Delhi. I didn't go to Goa. I didn't go to any places where, like, there is a vast bulk of English speakers. I went to, like, Ahmedabad, which is one of the... It's the largest city in the state of Gujarat. Barely anyone speaks English. It's either they speak hindi and gujarati or gujarati and english and gujarati is obviously the language there but yeah i had this like cultural shock and then i um when i watched the family like feeding the feeding the children i'm like bro you wouldn't see this in australia you wouldn't see a homeless couple with children like you you see an individual who's homeless in many cases, using Melbourne as a, you know, as a sort of like baseline for this, because I haven't really seen homeless people in Sydney or Queensland, because I don't really go up and grace those places regularly enough. But, um, you know, you see like a homeless person on the street of like, you know, in Collins Street or Swanson Street or something like that. And they'll tend to be, you know, for lack of a better term, they're pretty fucked off their face. You know, this was a sober couple who... Just trying had, to live. Just trying to live. Bro, and they're living like even though they're living in these like dire straits of like on the street, they're still feeding their children. And in that like moment as I'm watching that, I'm like, oh, even in that like chaos, there's actually like some beauty in that. Like the couple's actually staying together just to make sure that their children have like food on food on their plate.
1: Can I throw an idea at you then? Yeah, uh, yeah, go 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 for it. I wouldn't call that culture shock then. I've been formulating this idea, and it's got a lot to do with realities and lived experience. You know how people always go on about, especially within the the realm of politics and the two party system, that, oh, you know, those lefties, they live in a completely different reality. The reality is just it. There is only one reality, the world over, but it's the experiences that differ. And that seems like a very lefty progressive kind of throwaway line, but it truly is. It's the lived experiences which determine people's realities. And I think that's what hit you really hard. It wasn't so much the culture of it, because yeah. like you said, there can be homeless people in Australia, but the lived experience of a lot of homeless people, unfortunately has a lot to do with substance abuse. Whereas the lived reality for homeless people in India was the idea that they were just trying to scrape a living and get by and feed their yeah. children. Yeah. Same reality as Australia. Yeah. The experiences are different.
0: Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It was, it's weird now. Think about it like that. It's, now I'm trying to now I'm trying to navigate which moment was my next culture shock.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get into this in a moment. Not, not to get into the deep dark subcontinent too early. Yeah. I've got to have a, a quick conversation with you about the things that led up to you leaving for India because there's a lot of um, a lot of funny business happening on Twitter, and this was the time pre referendum on constitutional recognition of First Nations peoples. And you'd recently just gone to uh, a major protest, like a freedom rally in Melbourne. Mm. And there are some very funny things that happened at that protest where you were getting some funny messages and some some communications online, which could only be described as almost uh, a controlled operation, a shaping operation, or some kind of clandestine operations, for lack of a better word. Something really screw is going on. Oh, for sure.
0: <clears throat> and I didn't notice it immediately. Uh, obviously like I got there with, with an abundance of excitement, like anyone that like, you know, has the sort of, um, you know, inspiration to want to go to these rallies to participate in something greater than themselves. And first and foremost, there wasn't as many people as I thought there was going to be. And me being quite a, I don't know, for the longest time of my life, I tended to be the guy that sat and observed more than the guy that participated in certain things and that builds a certain sort of way of sort of uh, meshing in that social in that social framework which involves me sort of observing a lot more initially than participation so I had my camera out and I was recording but as I'm recording I'm just like observing looking at people like judging because I already had it in my mind from Twitter that You know, there are people out there that are part of these, like, you know, sort of quasi splinter cell groups that are either part of some greater political web, some, you know, sort of greater privatized, you know, sort of organizational foundational web, something of that nature designed to sort of like push a narrative in a specific direction. I'd already, I'd already assumed that there was people that were going to be there that sort of like fit the bill, let's say, but to sort of like identify them and pick them out of a crowd is something entirely different. And there was a few cats and I, there was a few cats that I'd seen. And I took screenshots from going back through my GoPro footage, you know, cause there was a few blokes there that were, you know, they had their sunglasses on, they looked quite, you know, the Australian term would be, you know, they had a bit of a staunchy look about them, like, you know, Like they weren't there to muck around, you know, like if someone said something or got in their face, like they wouldn't be hesitant to sort of like uh, create a reaction to that. Um, And a couple of the guys there sort of had like a bit of a vibe, at least for me, of some sort of something associated with maybe military or something associated with like security guards, something involved in that sort of nature of sort of, um, uh, you know, dealing with people that can sometimes, you know, sort of come into physical conflict. Um, but the morning was good. But when we started a walk, there was a few people that I'd started like sort of observing and watching how they behaved. And there was one guy that was completely dressed in black. And it, I didn't find this out until like about two days later that, um, one that guy that I'd sort of pointed out and I had brought up to on a, on a Twitter space, funnily enough, with the Melbourne freedom rally guy. Um, like he had said, the guy that hosted the Melbourne freedom rally, I, I can't remember his name to be completely honest with you. Um, but that there was, uh, there was upwards of like 10 guys that he's, intermingled with as part of like the freedom rally group that go as like individuals and just stand back and be part of the, um, be part of the protest. But like, you won't see them like yelling something out. You won't see them like swinging a sign. Like they're sort of a bit low key and they're there to stop the opposition. So the opposition for, you know, for, I guess for, you know, the listeners would be, let's say like the, at, you know, whatever the Australian version of the Antifa movement is. Black you know. Lives Matter,
1: any yeah, three-letter actor. Yeah.
0: yeah. So like the ones that are there to like start trouble, you know, like those interactions like sort of during the early humbles, early, early sort of humble beginnings of um of the COVID period and the early protests and the and the counter protests and all that sort of thing. Um <clears throat> anyway, fast forward <clears throat> to that night. Uh, And then the following day and then the following night, um, I'd found out that there was a couple of people there that were keeping tabs on me. Um, And they'd only been keeping tabs on me because they participate in the Twitter spaces and they've got a telegram group where they go back and interact with these people to keep a tab on individuals that participate in the social medium that push either a narrative or have conflicting views. And then they keep tabs on those individuals for what purpose? Like with the end the end goals, I'm not too sure. I can speculate in a few different directions like I think anyone can when they sort of see how these things operate because you don't know. You truly don't know like who knows who. Like does this group have connections with members of, you know, <clears throat> the Australian Federal Police? Do they have I was going to members- say, well,
1: let's yeah. play devil's advocate on this. Let's go with a baseline one. They're just extreme wing lefties, and they're gathering information so they can dox people and get them fired from their jobs. Really basic yeah. one you see a lot on the internet. Yeah, so that's a baseline of one extreme, and and you were kind of alluding to that this could potentially have links into um, national intelligence. Is that yeah. a, an area you're going to?
0: Yeah, I think so, man. Like it's just weird when you see, <clears throat> you know, you and me, and some others on Twitter. And I, I'm always the one that tends to like voice this. Most of the time I'm te- I tend to voice this. I know you've voiced this a bunch of times on Twitter spaces as well. Actually, I think you and me are the only ones that have actually voiced this. Everyone else seems to be sort of like oblivious <laughs> to these things for some reason. <laughs> but like this idea of, and you use the, I didn't have a phrase for it until you said it many, many months ago. discourse shapers. And that, that term has just stuck with me. Like it's built into my psyche now. And when I see certain characters and how they behave in the environment, and, you know, occasionally I ended up doing like a little bit of a, and I'm terrible at it, but I ended up like, you know, being a little bit of a, what we call an independent journalist, let's say, but without actually publishing any, any work, I just ended up like, you know, going and doing a little bit of a, a little bit of a hunt. And, um, you know, there's a few characters that were very, very vocal that had, like, all of a sudden massive amounts of following on Twitter. Um, You know, one person's like that Mike Carlton guy people are familiar with, the PR guy. But there's a few others that people aren't familiar with. And now they're starting to be present on Twitter spaces, which is interesting. Um, There's a chick named Sue Dharmapala. Um, there's, a there's a, another Anglo-Indian chick and she, she actually blocked me, um, cause I took her photo from Twitter and I put it through a website called PimEyes and it uses an AI and it scans, it's P-I-M-E-Y-E-S and it scans, um, the entire internet, I guess, for all facial rec- i don't know it's like a facial recognition software and it scans the entire internet for that face and 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 gives you like a a scroll down menu of all the images associated to a web link that have that face um and like nine point nine out of ten times it's correct you know like but you have to show like the face at a good angle like if you show the face at like sort of you know an offset angle like you might get some extra photos that aren't that person but <clears throat> This chick, I ended up doing it with her, and I scrolled through, and this is when I ended up going down this rabbit hole before we spoke about it, and I saw Nation Builder associated with the website, and it said it was she was an asset of Nation Builder. So I ended up going through Nation Builder's website and I was gobsmacked. I was shocked. I'm reading this, and all I'm seeing is this is an organization that's purely designed. To work with governments in order to shape the discourse that the politicians want to be shaped so they are paid actors that work within this framework and i know people have in their mind of like oh you know like what's an actor you know people do voice acting people do in-person acting this is this is acting in the realm of like how people would look at someone that does like pranks You know how people do, like, full-on pranks that go on, like, extensively? Like, they made TV series on it and stuff like that. It's like that, but without the gotcha. But instead of, like, the gotcha of the individual, it's gotcha to the entire social fabric. It's shaping the public discourse
1: and how they want to lead public conversation down a predetermined path. Yeah. With a slight nudging. It may not be a quick slap in the face, but it's enough to kind of change your direction. Yeah. What you just said about this person, I think it's the same person I've got in my mind, I encountered this girl on a couple of spaces uh, when it came around the conversation around immigration into Australia. What I found very interesting about this person is they took a very hard, right-leaning approach and they kept using terminology. As a brown person myself who's only here studying, I love Australia, but I'm definitely going to return back to my country because I'm going to use the skills that I've got here. I don't want to stay in Australia. I want to turn back, but I love Australia for what I've got. And they're very nicey-nice But at the same time pushing, you know, white people really need to stand up and start doing something about this. It was almost like this person was trying to drive fence-sitting people or people who are objectively looking at some of the conversations in this country at the moment and nudge them into a a far-right or harder-leaning approach to a lot of conversations in this country. And this is where I think this is going to naturally come out of your conversation with you. you. You witnessed that before you left. Yep. You are gone for three months. Two weeks is a long time in the news cycle. You will cut off from what, a lot of what happened in Australia.
0: Yeah, for the most part. I mean, okay. I was getting like bits and pieces. Um, I mean, the only thing I really stayed up to date with was whether the vote became a no or a yes, like yeah. when everything was said and done. But that was pretty much it. Occasionally, like I saw that Daniel Andrews quit and I was like, you fucking dog. You know, like I, you know, I just like this guy goes and fucking throws money at everything, bankrupts the state. We've got a concentration camp out in and He does all this bullshit. Admittedly, I'm not opposed to the tunnels. I think like building like a better infrastructure for rail network and stuff, I think is a good thing. I don't have any particular quarrel with that, but the way that the COVID like sort of pandemic layout sort of happened, the framework of that, the amount of money that went into that, uh, you know, you look at like his participation with like approvals of, um, indigenous affairs, like lobbyist groups and stuff like that. Like if you go into a few extra things, you go, you'll end up going like your fucking dog. Like, so all this ties back in, right? Yeah. So, you were
1: gone during this time. You got the cliff notes of essentially what was happening in Australia. It was three months. Um, we had Dan Andrews resign. So, a lot of the truthers or um, patriots in our community thought that saw that as a win, which arguably it was. But we also had bigger stuff going on at the same time. We had this referendum, a lot of people were putting energy into that. Hmm. And what I noticed initially was there were so many people from different walks of life, different even political persuasions, cultures. You know, it was the. The stereotypical rainbows and unicorns gathering of everyone's different will come together for a common cause. And it was beautiful. It really was. You're having conversations with people that you normally wouldn't. Once we had that vote, 60-40 split, which in my mind was a, a bit of a coincidence because it's the exact opposite of what the um, the same-sex marriage plebiscite was. Pretty much the same numbers. <laughs> Yeah. And as soon as the yes vote was knocked down, overnight, essentially, the division started occurring in those groups that have been working together really hard. A few international things happened recently that kind of drove that web- wedge larger. Israel Gaza, for one. But we saw we started to see the division again, and this is where I think even I got I got hoodwinked. I got hoodwinked for thinking that politics was a non-gamed thing, and people really had a chance to have their say. It was a referendum. We all got into it. We totally got hoodwinked. And I think the main purpose of the referendum, it was not only them telling us what they ideally would like to do, which they're still doing, by the way, via state treaties and going in through the back door, but it almost put people into camps where they could control the public discourse and build a somewhat of a second coming of... Australian patriotism, almost a la Americanized pride in your country, building like an Australian MAGA movement. I've seen this huge movement from we're all together, doesn't matter who we are, very quickly go from a walk into a jog into a run into arguably what you could say is verging on national socialist ideas that Honestly, kind of scare me to a degree because this conversation's going in a way that I almost feel like they predetermined what they wanted to happen. They almost want that pendulum swing to come back very hard and they're gaming the people to have the most impact for that to occur, which it's, it's an odd place to be because I had this com- the same conversation on a space recently when it came to Australia Day. I'm 36, Australia Day when I was a kid. It was it was a thing, but it wasn't huge like it is now. We've almost got this Pax Americana thing going on with Australian patriotism, where the fair flag's bloody everywhere. We've got the flag and bikinis, we've got the flag flag issues with woolies for Christ's sake. That seemed to be the next kind of directed discourse operation was to get people to flip out over craply made Chinese knockoff merchandise that's being sold at an inflated price in a store and people crack the shits because it wasn't being sold. That was the biggest misdirection and shaping operation that I've seen since the referendum. And I feel like it's definitely pushing and moving to a certain, in a certain direction. And I don't think it helps that at the moment we're seeing an all time high in military buildups around recruitment an all time high about conversations of conscription And ideas of governments around the world saying there's definitely going to be a conflict with Russia by 2030, so we need to start doubling down on our military budget and our plans. It's almost like it's predetermined they need to bring back nationalism because they've gamed out a broader conflict in the world.
0: Well, that's what happens when you become like the global sellout, isn't it? And I say that in like the nicest way and the harshest way possible because I love Australia but the governmental structure has like sold out the Australian people. And I don't think, look, I mean, a part of me wants to just be like, you know, oh, they're all just in it for the money and this and that. I think that some politicians over, like, let's say the last, like, I don't want to go back to like white Australia policy, but like, it just seems that, it just seems like the sort of direction that Australia has moved in sort of begun after that. And since then it's moved into a like very, a very odd position where it's almost like it's become the distributor, the the manufacturer, the distributor and the wholesaler, when it comes to the nature of minerals, but for everyone else, except in Australia. And I know I'm using minerals as just like one example, but like you can even go into the agricultural sector. You can go into pretty much any sector and the same thing like plays, plays true. Um, And, the policies that have come into play when it comes to the nature of being able to purchase land, um, irrespective of whether it's agricultural, whether it's under agricultural zoning, whether it's under residential zoning or commercial zoning, the policies that have been implemented in the states over the last 10-15 years <clears throat> has only expedited the process of where it is right now. Like I'm a firm believer. And I think anyone that has like a nationalist spirit, irrespective of their political leaning, will probably stand by this, I hope, <clears throat> is in my view, only a citizen of the nation. And I mean, citizen is able to purchase land or property for that matter. I think I think that is truly what separates, a, how do I describe it? I think that's what truly sort of, paints an idea of whether the government is really for the people of its country or whether it's not. If you're, if you're happy to put into something into effect that only Australian citizens can purchase property, then I've got no quarrel with that. We have people coming in from overseas from a, from a wide variety of countries every single year, they end up being in Australia as permanent residents. And I, I'd like to think the majority end up becoming Australian citizens I've not looked at the data, but from brief conversations I've had over the years, is it just seems like that's not the case. And in terms of what I've also seen <clears throat> from working in the real estate industry, at least from the uh, at least from the mortgage broking perspective, I saw exactly the same thing. And it's caused. I mean, that's only one angle, but it's essentially caused all these all these little um, implementations of bad policy have ultimately led Australia to where it is today. Which is, in my view, like a sort of sellout for its own nation for other nations' benefits. Because, <clears throat> oh, I'm not even going to continue. That's just where I'm going to land it on that.
1: So, is it so if, you could almost say it's almost a tug of war situation where there's different interests with different sellout points. And you could go down the route of they've got different political leanings, of, which, of course, would have different national interests that would deviate within those lines of political thought, say someone's selling out to China opposed to selling out to America, the Anglo-American empire, or either you going into this, this new empire, which is kind of growing at the moment, the BRICS kind of anti-Western establishment narrative, which is being pushed. But to go to the microcosm, which I alluded to before, what's your observation coming back and kind of interacting with those same groups you were in before? Would you say that my assessment is... Correct or incorrect that it's being driven in a certain
0: direction? 100% accurate. I saw, I saw, because I did come into spaces while I was away, but it wasn't regular. And one day I was in spaces, everyone's in there, like 30 regulars, 40 regulars, everyone having a gas bag, people laughing, chatting, talking shit, whatever it might be. And then the next time I come in, completely fragmented. And what was the only, what was the only factor that I immediately drew from that was Israel-Palestine conflict. Bingo. That was a big one. That's a big one because it's like, I mean, fuck bro. If I'm to go like to like a higher level on this sort of stuff and... I don't know if I can right now, but it seems to be like it's obviously a holy war going on, but what it's, what it's sort of effect that it's having on the social fabric, <clears throat> and especially when the government plays in the way it has been playing, which is sort of reinforcing that behaviour of division, It's it's become this like fragmented ground where like none of the Australians are like now mixing together <clears throat> and actually trying to like build community um
1: and this is that hot Hegelian dialectic I like to talk about quite a bit is that it's the problem reaction solution, but it's the government controlling every step of that. You could say that through the allowance of um, progressive ideas and um democratic socialist values that Australia's kind of been building on since the end of the white Australia policy, a lot of these left left leaning ideas and public institutions and the way we 're building our country. It's kind of allowed for the erosion of a lot of cultural values, economics as well. A lot of things have been given away. We've been whoring ourselves out to the rest of the world, to our own detriment. But in a sense, that was the problem. That's the problem that was created. The reaction they want is for the right wing, the conservatives, the people to get up in arms, push back for that pendulum swing. And the solution's going to be, in my mind, either an allowance for a pretty hard right-leaning government to get in and do some pretty long-term, short-term horrific shit that will probably solve a lot of long-term problems, but it's been gamed into that situation. And it's the idea of no one could be objective and sit in the middle anymore. You have to have that black or white narrative, the blue or red team approach. You have to be on one side. No one's prepared to sit in the middle and find common ground on anything anymore. You could have 98% of everything in common with the guy next door to you but he votes green, so you, he's nah, I'm not going to talk to him. Yeah. Small, little, tiny things like that. And this is what scares the shit out of me personally is because we're either going to go down one of two two parts, the extreme left-wing, socialist, authoritarian kind of control, live in your pod, humans are bad, greenhouse, greenhouse gases, 15-minute cities, the big scare, great reset that we've been pumped into us since COVID, or we go the other opposite end, the extreme end of, A nationalist socialist type of approach that is so dangerous it's it would be willing to send its men its its sons its fathers off to fight in a foreign war because of my patriotism my country where at the moment i think the most of us even i would say a lot of the patriots they're not willing to go off and die in someone else's war they know enough from history they're a bit more clued on than previous generations but I feel like the momentum it's getting, it wouldn't take much to convince these people to go overseas and die for nothing.
0: Yeah. And I think this is why the Australian, the ADF is pushing their advertising so hard. Like you mentioned it earlier, and it was interesting. I was getting shit tons of it last year for probably like the last, the third quarter, the third quarter of last year, I was getting it round the clock. <clears throat> Instagram and Twitter. Just scrolling, just like going through the feed, and you know how you just get the advertisements that come up, ADF like interests, like you know, sort of join, join the navy, join the air force, um, all, all the time. And I think, I think the direction that the country sort of goes in, I think it will ultimately become a republic. But how that republic is founded is really going to sort of determine the future of Australia because I think what the referendum was intended to do was what you had described plus I think the other effect was if it was going to go yes that would be a shortcut for the globalists to create their republic that adheres to the WHO the WEF that sort of thing that one world because
1: It's whether they wanted a short version or the extended version, because they've got all the time in the world for this to play out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned that that you continued on with the, the ADF ads that you'd seen prior to a lot of this going on, because the ADF advertising that I saw when I joined, it was very much build a career, have fun, people are smiling, they're in uniform, when they're out of the uniform, they're with the boys and the girls, there's people of different demographics every colour and shade under the sun, all enjoying it, Uh, be accomplished. Had these really catchy slogans like it's about building your own personal autonomy, becoming a better person. At the moment, a lot of the ADF advertising, it's white males between the ages of 20 and 30, very fit. And a lot of it is they're taking away the fun type of aspect of it and the enjoyment, and it's very much driving into showing them during operations, coming out of helicopters, landing with the full kit, going out on patrols. It shows the reality of it, whereas in the past it was about like like a social cohesion and a lot of that idea of getting people into it without showing the reality of what it would really like. And now they're showing the stark reality, which is a bit scary because if they're showing the stark reality, it's almost like preloading people for what potentially is going to come, which is something
0: I think they've predetermined. <clears throat> i haven't seen these i haven't seen any of these ads recently um but you're right on like the white people just being like <clears throat> like the all the, the the soldiers and stuff that are being shown on the advertising or being white people that's also interesting as well i don't know i've got some like conflicting thoughts on that but i think when it comes to sort of you know, if we go back to this, this direction and sort of who's participating in what, you know, this whole thing with Russia and, you know, interesting now, Tucker Carlson's in Russia. Yeah. What a (laughs) surprise, right? It's all blown up. And like, I'm just seeing like people just exactly the same stuff play out to how the stuff with Donald Trump played out. You just saw like something happen. And then like the sort of uh, effect of that was... you know, from a sort of like a negative perspective. So people just like, you know, trash talking, calling him a fucking pedophile and calling him this, calling him that, whatever name under the sun. And that's the mainstream media participating in that sort of cesspool of, uh, you know, sort of social discourse as well. And I've just seen exactly the same thing with uh, Tucker Carlson, at least what I've seen on Twitter today about, you know, cause it's obviously popping up cause it's all over the place. And people like, you know, talking shit gonna say like, oh, you know, it's just gonna be all lies, this and that. <clears throat> and I just wonder, like, if these people, these individuals, these organizations that are part of this hierarchical structure that's designed to divide a nation, separate it, and then somehow sew it back together and then give it to the over to the over to the one world government. I don't understand how they think that, like, ultimately that will work. If it's this, it's if the this... problem
1: with politics in general, know, It's something that I, I'm i so glad I came back to after being hoodwinked with the referendum. And oh. it was a good wake-up call in, in hindsight because, like, a lot of the stuff that, especially Tucker Carlson as an example, he's coming out and saying that the government, um, the EU, they've tried to veto him from going to Russia. They're going to put a lifetime ban on him entering Europe so he can't do it. Uh, The media's bad. The media doesn't tell you the truth. Hey, he's not wrong. We know this is happening. But at the same time, he's spinning it in such a way that the government, the establishment is bad, but you need my government to fix it. Mm -hmm. If you ever need the government to fix something that's already broken and caused by a previous government, you're not actually solving the issue. And that's where the team politics, I think, really blurs the lines of what's actually true and what's a, a pitched narrative. Because... A lot of people say this, but birds of a feather flock together and it's politics as two wings of the same bird and that gets told again and again and again. But people fall back into it. And I don't think there's... uh, I don't know if we actually have, as a society, the ability to pull away and go, yeah, everything's fake and gay. It's all being played. It doesn't matter which way you go down because they've got a predetermined outcome for everything. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? It's... It's oh, very black pilling
0: I uh, uh, bro, i a lot of man, extent, like, like, but I'm, it's the reality. I'm done with it. I, yeah, and I'm like, <clears throat> it, bro. I honestly believe it's all predetermined now. Like this, this train, the train, the, the direction that this train is going in, it's too late. The train's already left the station. It's on express. It's not stopping at any more stations. Like now, it's passing people that are on the side of the tracks that trying to that are now trying to like scramble to see if they can get on board. Like it's just um it's at this point now where I, I don't see it stopping. I think like, what's the term? Ah, oh, Ben Shapiro mentioned it once and, and I was sucked in on that thought. It's this idea that like, oh, sorry, that's it. Slippery slope fallacy. We're now like at that stage where like, it's too late. Like you can't, like you can't start dragging the train, like back down the hill, like back up the hill. It's, it's too late. And I think, and I know that sounds sort of, negative in many respects, I think there's going to be elements of sort of humanity that will, you know, sort of continue on as normal. But when it comes to the nature of the Western structure, it just seems like it's unable to hold itself very well. And I don't know if that's because the policies that are, and and I assume that it is, I assume that the policies that have come into play over the last, like, let's say, maybe not century, but I I would say the the last 50 years at least, and this would probably comfortably go into the US and Canada and Australia because the seventies was a very interesting time for sort of like world revolution, Western revolution, like many things sort of like happened. There was obviously like the rise in sort of, um, you know, like, like spiritual thoughts, psychedelica, or all this sort of stuff, sort of seeing the world for what it really is. You know, you had this, obviously this anti, this anti-war uh, movement that was taking place. You had, you know, sort of uh, military uh, activities in the middle East already happening when it came to the nature of oil, you already had all this stuff sort of, Going on, but it all sort of begun like 50, maybe 60 years ago from every single nation, or at least within the West, participating in it. And now I think that when you look at things like, you know, WEF members who are now working within the Australian governmental structure or the New Zealand governmental structure or the American governmental structure, insert XYZ, whatever it might be, most of Europe, I would say when you look at that and then you see how they behave in the sort of like public discourse when it comes to the nature of of pushing uh very extreme social policies that really like divide nations all i see is like oh is it too late because they're already there like the infections already spread like how do you root the infection out when the infection when you're voting another infection in because the next one that comes along is likely still part of that. It's already infected. So I don't know. Like, uh, like this goes into a very deep conversation of like political philosophy that I'm not like well equipped for. But when it comes to like that sort of nature of things, I, I think that it's like... what ultimately happens is revolution, whether that's French revolution, whether that's you know 50,000 Sri Lankans you know, running into their parliament house and holding it hostage for seven months because they didn't get their policies or whether that's the farmers, you know, in, um, where are they at the moment? Where's the farmers? Whatever All, country. Oh, all across Europe and all I've got a take on that so Yeah, please. But you see uh, my point, like yeah. they're, they're forms of revolution. I'm not saying it's going to be like the French revolution where people are going to be like lobbing heads on the streets, but I wouldn't be surprised that that also happens in some Eastern European nations,
1: yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's it's almost the analogy of like when people find mould on their bread, they think if they pick the visible bits of mould off, it's fine. But yeah. mould, like anything else, has a root system that grows into the bread. So you're still eating it anyway. It's still yeah. there. It's always lingering underneath. Yeah. Um. Just quickly, as for that whole thing in Europe, I think that's a great case of the problem was presented, the World Economic Forum, the UN, all these kind of governing bodies trying to do the eat the bugs approach and get rid of farming. Farmers got pissed off. The reaction was what they wanted to the point where they're demonstrating that much. You could arguably say from a government perspective that that's a danger to the national interest and they could quite easily seize the means of control.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Turn all those farms into government entities. And when does that happen traditionally? Through communism, unfortunately, and people die of mass starvations. Yep. We've really detracted away from the whole topic of India, but I want to quickly get one oh, no, story in, right. and, and we can get into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you remember the good old port boys during the time of COVID, the yeah. black jackbooted assholes that shot people in the back? Mm-hmm. I've noticed them out in public quite a bit recently, and I live in regional oh, Victoria, oh. and I was quite shocked by this, that I went into my local shopping centre to get some milk one night and a port car pulled up. And they're very distinctive from other Victorian police cars. And I thought, geez, why is a public order response team here? And I just sat down and watched. And then two guys got out of the car, dressed as Civvies. Like what you would see in the memes of feds in America when you see like mm-hmm. the stereotypical, like very Americana crew cuts, khaki shorts, normal shirt on, sneakers, aviators or ray bans And they walked into the shopping centre. I thought, I'm going to follow these guys and see what happens here. They walked into the shopping centre. One grabbed the basket. One was sitting outside pretending he was on his phone. And the other guy just walked in and was randomly grabbing things off shelves, looking around, and he was looking for someone. He was definitely looking for someone and following someone. He didn't find who he was there for, clearly, because he just grabbed the basket, handed it to a woman over the counter, and said, I actually don't need this, and walked out. And he was talking to his mate and they had a chat and they started to walk back to their car and I kind of got in their way and I said, oh, sorry. And they bumped into me and they didn't actually say anything back in response. I stopped and I said, excuse me, I said sorry to you and they turned around and said, what do you want me to say? And I've gone, oh, you wouldn't be happen to be the same guys that uh, were shooting Victorians in the back a few years ago, are you? And they went white as a ghost that, oh, my God, someone picked up on who they were, even though they stood, stood out like tits on a bull. It was so noticeable to what they were. (laughs) Even if you would just just watch them go from the marked police car inside, Mm. they thought because they were wearing civilian attire, no one would notice them.
0: That's crazy, man. I don't know why they're out in regional Victoria. That's a bit odd.
1: Very sus. And these are the people that are supposed to respond to huge protests and civil disobedience. Last time I checked, maybe a kid's... Dealing stuff off the shelves wouldn't be that high priority.
0: Yeah, but even like if it's a kid dealing stuff off the shelves, like that's not public order response. No, like that's a the local beat cop. Yeah, so like it's. Mm, I wonder, like, if they have jurisdiction when it comes to the nature of, you know, we saw it during COVID with the emergency powers. Is that the police were going to people's houses? And, you know, arresting them for making Facebook groups to set protest times and dates and stuff like that. I wonder if they hold any jurisdiction to, you know, when it comes to nature of um, who does what on social media. Ooh, Um, like they were setting someone up for a mate, possibly, do you think? Possibly, possibly. Mm. Because, you know, I mean, we saw like the whole thing with Jordan Shanks which was really interesting with that um, deputy premier. I forgot his name now. Um, you know, we obviously saw the stuff that was happening during COVID. And I just wonder, you know, I say a few things like, for example, you know, like the sort of, when we look at Twitter, I'm just going to use this as like a, as an example, it's sort of the example that I give, you know, maybe a keep up with it, but it just seems like there's a monstrous amount of the Australian community, except one person from the Australian community, on Twitter that um, hasn't had their um, subscriber um, applications approved. Um, I've had mine now sitting there for almost 10 months. I assume that many other Australians that applied for it on the same day became quote unquote available, um, also did that and no one's had theirs approved. And I've always had this weird thought about whether, you know, whether there's some sort of digital block that's associated, you know, a digital block that's connected to the state government or the federal government when it comes to the nature of, um, you know, sort of whom to approve for extracurricular, extracurricular, extracurricular activities on social media. And I come to that thought because of the interactions that I've also had on social media it's obviously specifically on twitter with particular characters and stuff of that nature people that were participating in the large groups and you know it was a bit sort of sus on them who they are this and that you know sort of part of a greater web let's say um and i wonder whether the emergency powers act or any policies that have sort of come into being since COVID have given the public order response team or the the PROs sort of extracurricular powers outside of the norm of what is supposed to be the sort of jurisdiction when it comes to the nature of the police force. So I I don't know. Well,
1: that would make sense because from their perspective, they could have put that through and rammed it in during COVID because so many people were gathering on social media and forming groups and doing things along those lines. So they naturally would need an intelligence branch or means to either preempt that, control that, or interrupt that.
0: Yeah. And the sort of, like, group we manifested in, for the most part, were all sort of part of a similar field of thought. But I'm getting messages about like, oh, we should meet up here. Oh, we should meet up there, la, la, la. And I'm like, bro, you're in this same sort of group that I am. And you're asking me, someone you don't know, to (laughs) randomly meet up. Like that automatically sets alarm bells in in my mind. Like I don't mind doing a meet up at the protest like I did with a couple of the boys because there's heaps of other people there as well. That's different. But I wonder, like, if people have done this, where they've gone and met up with people, and it's a couple of blokes, you know, that are public order responses dressed as civvies, you know, because they said something online that the government doesn't agree with, or it goes against some, like, very broad policy that doesn't give any greater definition, so it's up to, like, the government to sort of like implement or it's up to the police to sort of you know do something about but it's at their will because it's like broad term stuff so you know for example like the voice you know the voice was a very broad policy it didn't show anything of greater nature there was some rudimentary framework that they put forward from an advertising perspective but it wasn't a framework that was actually built within the policy you know sort of stuff of that nature so it's 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 sort of up to their um Oh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, it's up to their uh jurisdiction's not the word I'm looking for. Sorry, man, I've completely lost the word. When it's, it's that it's that description of like someone makes their own decision, you know, but Victoria police are deciding whether they can go and do this or go and do that based on X, Y, and Z. And I wonder if that's what could possibly be happening because we saw it during COVID. We saw it with people getting arrested in their homes because they made Facebook groups or, you know, they made Instagram posts or stuff like that. Like, oh, this is where we're going to go meet, you know, this day, this time at some local park, Western suburbs, Northern suburbs, doesn't matter. Police were at their houses fucking arresting them for incitement. Like that's wild, man. And I'm worried that like the direction and bringing this back round to what we were originally discussing was the direction that Australia goes in. And that's all these little things build up to that direction that I'm like, oh, at this point, it seems like it's a runaway train.
1: And this is the, this is like a self-fulfilling prophecy because this is going on where it's building to that situation where it's a lot like the UK where you'll have local coppers knocking on your door about a Facebook post because it's deemed hateful speech or something along those lines, really silly stuff that you know we're starting to see happen in real time. But there's a mechanism or a higher tier above us because we're very small fish in the grand scheme of things. Um, me as a podcaster, I'm not big... Sh- this isn't a big show. I'm not getting millions of downloads. I'm not a Joe Rogan, but the likes of a Joe Ro- Joe Rogan, a Tucker Carlson, a Roseanne Barr, of all people, they're starting to come out and talk about things that this community's been talking about for well over a decade. These aren't new revelations, but because it's in the mainstream, it's driving that public discourse in a certain direction which will unintentionally or intentionally create those conversations, those, those meetups and kind of pigeonhole people into things that are going to get them into a lot of trouble. And they don't even realize they're putting their, putting their nose in the trap. Yeah, man. They can smell the, they can't, they can't see the trap through the cheese. It's going to happen.
0: It's worrying. It's certainly worrying. I think, I think, I think a lot more people are just going to get trapped than people, don't I think I think it's just you know you know everyone always talks about that one percent ninety percent five percent sort of thing where like 90 percent of the people like are zombies they can't they can't really and it's not that they're unintelligent it's not that they're you know not great at their own field it's not that you know you can't have a conversation with these people it's just when it comes to the nature of like macro scale thinking in the sort of direction of a of a country of a civilization it's like it becomes like asinine to them like it becomes like non-existent thought like they're not able to sort of like formulate all these multiple sort of perspectives to sort of like build up a better sort of idea of the environment they they sort of live and thrive within they just you know they're very they're very repetitive in their nature i'm not going to go down that rabbit hole of npcs and whatnot and all of this and that but like it's just it's just it's my own observations it's conversations i've had with others about their observations of the world this and that and it's just how i say it now man i just see it's like this 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 thing where you just have to accept fate that you know this self self fulfilling prophecy where there's just you know there's just a bunch of people that are just going to succumb to the nature of tyranny to the nature of these things that i would hope most people would like have deeper sort of philosophical thoughts of a moral nature on but it just seems like it's not the case man yeah but I
1: think people fall for a lot of the hopium idea that you know I've got this little show and I'm going to change people's opinions and that person's going to talk to five other people and they're going to talk to other people and I think it's going to have this momentum and build and that kind of hundredth monkey analogy but I don't think that can happen the way that the system is built and
0: the way people generally think it for the broader term not with the algorithm and I say that like Bro, I will I wanna see everyone who I've fostered friendships with, bro, thrive. I wanna fucking thrive on social media because there's people that deserve to thrive in my personal opinion. Like conversations I've had with people, for relationships I've built with people, I think there's people that absolutely deserve to thrive. But I think the way that system is in place right now really hinders their own growth. You know, like when we look at when we look at Twitter as a prime example of Twitter the algorithm is a fucking minefield it is an absolute minefield and if anyone doesn't know how much of a minefield the algorithm is with twitter like they need to go and like watch some videos on it or something and i only learned because i'd had conversations with you because i had conversations with mick and others on twitter about like how these things sort of operate wilson etc etc and finding out that like you know if someone is shadow banned and you interact with that person, you also become shadow banned. That of that, me. I'm the leper. You, dude, you're not the leper. There's dude, <laughs> so many lepers. There's lepers everywhere. I'm a fucking leper half the time, mate. Like, the only way to not be a leper is it seems like you've got to, like, deactivate your account and then reactivate. I don't even know anymore, man. Like, I got Pre-speech told, speech like, platform, my ass. <laughs> yeah, dude. it's so It's so strange. Like, one post, I'll get, like, you know... I'll get like hundreds of likes. I'll get something like 50,000 views. And I'm like, fuck yeah, dude. Like, I'll, I'm just going to like keep that momentum. And then I do another post like a day after, but during that time I've either commented on people's posts or replied or retweeted or whatever it might be. And then the next time I make a post, then it only gets like 200 fucking views and it gets like two likes. And I'm like, this is what? And then it really like, re- for me, it really fucks with my anxiety. Like even to the nature of like sort of pushing my own stuff, you know, onto the social medium. It's like, what's the point in even like loading up videos, if it's only going to get like 50 fucking views, you know, like it's, and this I know is, that. Yeah. This anyway. is the
1: perspective I've got to though, Fuzzy, because I don't actually charge anything for this podcast. I know a lot of people who have smaller shows than mine and they have Patreons and they have tears and they have all this stuff. I just like having conversations with people but I've what I've realized is that as heavily shadow banned as I am across not just X and other yeah. platforms the growth that I do get seems to be organic it's through word of mouth and that's what I kind of want I don't want an algorithm to pick something up and throw it out because I know how the algorithm works the algorithm only pushes a certain agenda that it wants to be pushed yeah and this is where you see a big change in what I would say would be the truth of podcasting community recently there's people that I've listened to from the States that I held in a very high esteem as being some of the best voices out there. And they kind of got stuck into a, a a realm of they don't really focus on any one thing. They cover everything, which used to be great because it was multiple conversations. But it got to the point where they realized they had to ride the algorithm. So they'd be having conversations based off what was trending at the time. And often what was trending at the time doesn't necessarily line up with any of their personal, philosophical, theological or political views. They were just covering it for content's sake. And you could see that very much with one of the events that came out recently, the Miami Alien type of story, right? Yeah. You had people who I've known through personal conversations know that's that was a bullshit story, but they spoke about it for like a three and a half hour podcast just to get the clicks, and they went on board with panel shows and all these people talking about it. It took less than 10 minutes to debunk that story, and all they were doing was putting out infotainment instead of um, information. Infotainment in itself doesn't necessarily have to be the truth. As long as it's entertaining and it has information, they're fine. But they kind of steered away from their idea of being a truther or a conspiracy theorist, and they're just putting out content for the clicks. And it's that idea that people have almost corrupted their own soul and their, their their creativity and their spirituality by having to follow the algorithm and doing what it says because there's no way around it in its current form.
0: You're going to make me cry, man. I'm getting butterflies in my stomach. That was beautiful. <laughs> Dude, you're right. You're absolutely right, man. It's... <sighs> Fuck, bro. Money is one of those things, isn't it, man? It's just a... Uh... Oh God! Like you can't live with it, you can't live without it. Like well, it is, it's, it's, you know, it's, oh, fuck. Like even if you, even if you go to like, <clears throat> even if you go to like, and, and when I say the bare minimum, it's I'm very broad when I say this because the opposite of reliance on the system versus the opposite, or the opposite of that being not having to rely on the system to sort of live a means, you know, sort of off the grid, let's say. Like even if you're off the grid, at some point you still require money to either spend or purchase whatever it might be, you know. And
1: there's no way out of the system. This is the this is the thing. People get red peeled. They want to go off the grid. They start to get black peeled. And the final realization is you have to almost be clear peeled and see the world for what it is. There is no way to 100% remove yourself from the system. You can remove yourself to a certain point. But you're always attached to it. Unless you're prepared to do a Ted Kaczynski and go run <laughs> off into the woods and be a madman, and have no contact with society, yeah. there's no way to get yeah. out of it. My dream.
0: <laughs> just don't be sending packages in the post because that's how you get caught. Yeah, true, true. No, there won't <laughs> be any sending packages. No, it's I don't know. I had a little fan of the thought, you know, like at the end of my you know, the sort of yeah, end of my days, you know, sort of my later years, you know, I'd love to just finish up just settle in the mountains somewhere, Northern India and just chill out. You know, uh, could, just, you, could you imagine if you did that
1: like in your, I don't know, say early sixties, you just retired. You got your money, you fly over. That's it. Walking off into the bush, tiger, bam,
0: gets you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, if that's the way, if that that's would, the way God intended, brother, that, that's the way it is. would be very poetic if it went down Of course, that way. of course. And that's just it, dude. Like it's, you know, I don't think, I think, look, you know, to sort of, like, deviate the conversation in a more positive manner, I think, and I say that with absolute love, I think uh, I think everyone, irrespective, even if it's whether for money or not, should always strive in the direction of where their dreams and goals are set. And I know that, fuck, man, it can be difficult. Like, it, it's a challenge unto itself, hey. You know, like, I sort of describe it as, like, walking up a hill or a mountain and, you know, you'll get, you know, you'll get like rocks along the path, you know, occasionally you'll get like little rocks that are like, eh, you know, you just sort of like brush it off. Occasionally you get bigger rocks where, you know, it takes like a little bit of force to sort of move it. It's a bit more stressful, you know, and then occasionally you get boulders, you know, and those boulders are things that really sort of like really make or break a man, especially, or a woman when it comes to the nature of like sort of excelling in the direction to sort of achieve their goals and dreams. So I've got, yeah. a fr-
1: I've got a friend on another podcast, and he says this approach when it comes to truth: truth would should withstand the pressure. And whatever you're looking into and you're investigating, it doesn't matter how much pressure you put on it, it should be able to withstand it. I think your hopes and dreams are almost like that. It's yeah. almost like the the juice is worth the squeeze. If if your hopes and dreams crumble under the pressure, maybe that wasn't for you, or maybe mm. the way you're approaching it isn't the right way. Yeah, not that all hopes and dreams can be fulfilled but your journey shouldn't be something that you give up on so easily. Sometimes you have to deviate. You do. Sometimes you have to take a different path. Like you said, sometimes boulders are too big to cross. Sometimes the road has been taken out by a mudslide, so you have to find (laughs) alternative paths.
0: Yeah, and you do, man. And I think, like, as long as you... But dreams and goals can adapt as well. Oh, of course, of course. But I think, like, I think people have, like, you know, when we look at, like, when we look at like a dream or goal, I guess this sort of like gets into a bit of sort of, you know, the nature of like egg or chicken sort of situation. But like a home, you know, like a place to call to your own, you know, uh, that could be an egg or chicken scenario. But I'm sort of looking at it from the perspective of like that, that for many people, I would think would be like a dream, like oh, maybe a goal. I, I don't know. As I said, It gets to a very dream chicken or chicken or egg sort of situation when i discuss the nature of dreams and goals but um you know i think there's certain things that one aspires to and that path definitely changes but i think as long as you hold that notion like true in your heart even if that road deviates and a mudslide comes along and you end up going down the hill and having to take another path to get back up Like you'll still get to that destination, but the journey definitely changes, but the destination, I think, as long as you like hold that true to yourself, like you'll still get there. That's my belief anyway. Like, but yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. We haven't even started talking about India and we've got all philosophical on us already. And dude, India is full of historical, cultural, spiritual, philosophical discussions that we could go on for hours. So let's get started. Yeah, You arrive in India. Like you mentioned, you had that little bit of a, a culture shock or a reality shock as to what yes. other people's lived experiences were like compared to your own, and that hit you pretty hard. And I think it would for anyone. I can remember even just as a regional Victorian kid going into the city and seeing the way some homeless people in the city lived like that, that was confronting. Yeah. So you've gone into a foreign country. People are ethnically and racially very different from yourself. They speak multiple languages that you do not speak. What else was a culture shock for you? What hit you hard
0: besides just seeing the way that that family were living? Not as many people use cash as I thought, which is a big shocker. So, is is it a barter system then? It's digitised. Really? It's digitised to the shithouse, mate.
1: India, Uh,
0: digitised to the the shithouse. I know, I know it's a shocker. I know, but believe me, like I'm... It's that, it's that digitized <clears throat> to even hand 500 rupees to a rickshaw or a tuk-tuk driver is almost akin to an insult now. Because 10, 11 years ago, the Modi government, the BJP, introduced a, a digitized system called uh, the UPI system. And it's essentially a a QR code system that's connected to your bank account. And this QR code system interacts as like the sort of, um, I don't know, it sort of transfers money from one person to another, essentially. That's what it does, but it's connected to your bank account. So you can go to a street vendor that sells 10 uh, 10 rupee tea, 10 rupee chai, which is about 20 Australian cents, something like that. And you just scan with your phone and you just pay the 10 rupees and bang, done. So it opened up. When this system in- came into effect and the and the government that was opposed to it, which is the Rahul Gandhi government, they mocked the fuck out of the Modi government saying this will never work, this will never work. And it kicked off from 11 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, India was 2% of the population was digitised on a digital system now it's upwards of 45% this is in 11 years and the amount of money that country has made in such a short amount of time just from from cash inflow because now everything's digitized so it's easier to track on tax and it's easier to stop people from like you know rigging the system and stuff like that all these extra things that come with it they've just invested it into the country and now everyone's just fucking digitized from the guy that the guy that goes and pays, you know, 500 Australian dollars a night to stay in the Taj Hotel that, you know, has a spa and bed and breakfast and all this and that all the way down to the average street vendor, you know, that just is like just selling stuff on Uber now or what they have over there is like Zomato and Swiggy and they just, just sell tea or they sell little it's... meals and stuff. It's crazy, man.
1: This is wild because it, this really goes to show perspective because the average Western perspective is that India is still very, for lack of it, a better world, third world. Yeah. It doesn't, it wouldn't have the infrastructure that could possibly have a system where everyone has essentially it's their own ID, their own digital ID at this point, if they've got a QR code associated to their bank account. Yeah. This is well decades ahead of basic pay
0: pass. You tap and go. Oh, it's beyond it, man. And it's, and their digitized system, like their digital ID system, it's still kind of in in its infancy. However, it hasn't sort of the, the, the nature that the government have tackled it on it is they've been very, they've pushed very heavily into the nature of like privacy. So like the individual's data doesn't get like shared on some government fucking website except for, Any um, identification services with their, like, for example, you know, we've got like Centrelink in Australia with like their healthcare system and that sort of stuff. But in terms of the nature of social media and stuff like that, they don't participate in any of that data, data extraction side of things. So they keep it like very sort of like kosher, let's say. But the fact that it came out completely revolutionized like the infrastructure of the country, their internet, their 5G network, firstly, they don't have this idea of capped speeds. Cap speeds is a it's a non-existent term when it comes to the nature of their ISPs. So their biggest ISPs is is Airtel and Geo. <clears throat> and Airtel and Geo don't none of them, Vodafone as well, they don't cap don't cap your internet speeds first and foremost. Their 5G. I'm getting like 250 megabit download speeds across the entire city, when I go out into the rural areas, in like smaller towns, I'm getting 5G. If I go into like rural areas where there's basically nothing, right, if I go into the fucking mountains like I did, I was still getting four or five bars of 4G. So irrespective, I've got signal everywhere and it's cheap as fuck. I'm talking $15 Australian dollars a month for non-capped 5G speeds with... 270 gigs of data to use
1: so there were spaces you were on when you were over
0: there where you were coming through loud and clearer than I was oh man it's crazy like the internet speeds were ridiculous bro like I'm you know look obviously it is very determined as well look on the 5G side of things it's very good The Wi-Fi though, like most businesses like tend to have like shitty routers or it's probably not even just that. Like a lot of the buildings tend to be a lot of like concrete inlays in the walls. So like all the walls are like very concrete, like old Victorian style. That's their methodology of building and construction. It seems to hold true. Like a lot of the buildings in some of the areas are like still there from like British Raj, you know, and they were like doing concrete back then. But irrespective, the technology in general is is quite advanced.
1: So this... This builds yeah. a very a bigger picture worldwide because a lot of people tend to think that Australia, and particularly Victoria, is a testing ground for a lot of these new world order, West kind of initiatives, right? But you look at India, India's taking a very different approach. They're giving you the carrot, whereas in the West, we seem to be getting the stick mm. for a lot of our interactions online and through technology. Yeah, They're sure. getting this expanded infrastructure that's free access, that has this no limitations on it they're not obviously going in and taking your data and your information so it makes people opt in to have that over 11 years of 45 percent uptake in it for a population of their size is unbelievable you would never see something like that in australia within that time frame
0: why do you think they're poised to like be in the top two like economic powerhouses over the next like five to ten years that's Dude, they've literally taken the money. They're building mega fucking highways, bro. I saw a highway. They're doing this national highway plan that connects all the states together on one massive highway And this highway at some points is eight lanes, and I bore witness to it on the eastern side of India was eight lanes on both sides. And the lanes are fucking enormous. And I'm like, Holy shit. But this is what happens, bro. They got you got one point four billion people. Like the workforce is able to achieve these like monumental like infrastructure projects very easily. So is this India just
1: taking advantage of its labour force, its drive, its ambition to become one of the top dogs? Or is it a situation where there's two paths that lead to the same outcome? And if we kind of go into the idea of a a global government, a World Economic Forum, UN type of shady characters, here's their predetermined idea. India, as the ultra-nationalist doing its own thing, coming out of the oppression of British colonisation, building itself does it still meet that outcome because they're unintentionally building the infrastructure and the technology that governing world body would need to achieve its
0: goals? Yeah, I absolutely think so. I think, see, you know, there's a term that I've I've heard thrown around the Australian community a couple of times and it's about generational trauma. And I think when we look at generational trauma, we might say it is like a bit of a gimmick in the West because we generally think of generational trauma from a very rudimentary perspective of like, oh, well, my dad was a fucking deadbeat, like, so that person's got generational trauma. Um, But when it comes to the nature of the civilization of India, that generational trauma doesn't just span into the British Raj, it also spans into the Mughals, into the Islamic invasions. So we're talking like somewhere in the ballpark of like almost 1,500 years of invasion and colonization. So now they're at a stage, and bear in mind, they had a lot of natural resources stripped out of the country from the British Empire, like somewhere in the ballpark of like upward. Some estimates go up to like $40 trillion worth of gold. And the lowest estimates, I think are like $12 trillion worth of gold. Irrespective, it's a lot of fucking gold.
1: It's quite interesting, Fozzie, that the British Empire then in a lot of ways is like the the beta version of India in a lot of regards because historically that was Britain. Britain was constantly being invaded and taken over and colonised and subjected to lots of foreign powers until it got to the point where history kind of built up to a momentum where the people had established themselves, a culture was, and a language was embedded to the point where they could stand their own feet. And we're kind of seeing that happen with modern day India now,
0: aren't we? Yeah, yeah, for sure it's it's crazy man like even when you look at the nature of like the individual there's this sort of like concepts and it's it's built in and this is the thing that's sort of like when we look at hinduism like most people that aren't hindu tend to think hinduism is a religion and i know that there's like this you know sort of like gimmick where people say like oh you know hinduism is not a religion it's a way of life it's not that in its entirety it's more philosophical teachings of morality how to interact and this and that yes there is you know within hinduism there is like specific books when it comes to the nature of ritual and stuff like that but when it comes to the nature of how to be cohesive in a social environment and acceptive of cultural faith hinduism seems to have the sort of framework in such a way that it has been able to succeed into how do I describe it? It's been able to stay fluid. It's been able to sort of move in the same direction and not, not die off, uh, you know, as the culture or as a spiritual faith since the beginning of history, at least, you know, this form of history, obviously I'm not talking about prehistory. We're talking, you know, because mess- India, India, not obviously the India today, but India traded with the Sumerians. Like there's, you know, evidence of all of that. Their sort of empire expanded all the way down into like, you know, um, uh, what's it? Like uh, southwestern Southwestern region of like the, you know, the United, that sort of section of the United Arab Emirates, you know, like there was, um, I don't know. It's, anyway, I'm not going to go into like fucking Quranic scripture and stuff. <laughs> this is not the space for that. But... Do, you
1: know who, do you know who's to blame for that idea of, Hinduism being like the western perspective of Hinduism. I think the whole new age movement has a lot to blame with it. Like the ho- new age movement in my mind is they try to take the tenets of Hinduism, repackage it and throw a couple of crystals on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: I think And that's what people see. People see Hinduism as the new age movement.
0: You ask us you ask like a staunch Hindu what they think of yoga in the west, they're like Puh. like they spit. They think like it's just like a gimmick. But, you know, like, it's only, I think it's just a natural, like, sort of cause and effect of, it's just existence there. Like, you know, people gravitate into many different spiritual frames of thought. So, it's only natural. You're going to get people, you're going to get people that go there and they, like, you know, this is why I didn't go to the places that people told me to go to or recommended me to go to. So, like, Goa, for example, is like a hot spot for debauchery it's a hot hotspot to go and like be like some quasi hippie that ends up having orgies doing shit tons of cocaine. Like, I'm like, that's not me. I'm not going down there. I wouldn't go there for that. I'm not interested in that, you know? So like there's people that do that and then they come back to, you know, Australia or something. They're like far out, man. And they're all like, you know, very sort of hippie. And in a way. In or the Sunshine correct, Coast. Correct. You know, in some, in some ways I'm slightly like that, but I'm not like, I'm not growing dreadlocks. You know, I'm not wearing like, I mean, right now I'm wearing a rugby shirt, but like you, you wouldn't catch like EP wearing a rugby shirt. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, but my point, our our point we were discussing was the nature of like India's sort of like achievements over the last, you know, sort of like, uh, I would say since like 1978 till now is when it really sort of like ramped up the nature of like India. Um, And in the last 10 to 15 years, it's only compounded, man. Like their healthcare system is actually fantastic as well. Um, It's dirt cheap, even for foreigners. So if you like break a bone, if you like lose a limb, if you have to go into surgery for whatever reason, and you're a foreigner, chances are you've got money. But even if you don't have a lot of money, like you don't even need to concern yourself with insurance. Like the cost is that cheap. Like it's something like to stay in the hospital overnight, like, the, the surgery and whatever is, like, like you pay, like, 200 uh, two hundred rupees and then, like, you just pay for the room and the room's like, I don't know, like, 1,500 to 2,000 rupees a night. It's, like, 20 $30. So, you know, if there's, if something happens there, either way, whatever your venture is to go to a foreign country like India, like, you're going to have a fantastic time, irrespective, I think, like, I understand it can be daunting it can be intimidating but like bro the hospitality man is unfucking believable people just willing to help even if they don't speak even if they don't speak English you know I, I found myself in in two dozen instances more where I'd like ask someone for help they didn't speak English but that they went and found someone that spoke English just to help me out you know, like it was, and that's just like one thing I could go into many different avenues of like Airbnbs and having like building friendships with Airbnb hosts and this and that, and going, being invited out to dinners and, you know, going and staying at people's houses and this and that, like there's so many things that happened in like the three months, bro. But like the one thing that I took from it all is like everyone there that I interacted with was like a, like a, like a jewel, like an absolute gem. Um, Would you say that's a reflection of the culture? And a
1: a lot of India is Hindu, not the only religion, of course, but would you say it's the basis of Hinduism has had that big of a mark on India? It's kind of built
0: that cultural framework and cultural identity. Yeah. I couldn't say it in Sanskrit, but the term translates to guest. Our guest is God. So to invite someone into your home is doing like, I believe in karma. I say it now as karma, but that concept of karma about like good action, good reaction or action and reaction, you know, you can look at Newton's whatever it is, law of motion or whatever, but that idea of like doing something good and sort of um, adopting the fruits of that goodness that you've done is, is heavily built into Hinduism. It's one of like the sort of like core tenets that exists within the framework of like how to be into and, and in that, in that sort of, um, in that sort of concept that builds up the foundation, there is this term of guest is God. So it it really plays to the culture. It really plays to the person. It really sort of shows in their in their sort of approach when it comes to the nature of like how to interact in society. Um, and yes yeah, so
1: so that, yeah. that whole idea of karma is an interesting site because As a Christian and a newly found Christian, I've got a lot of what you consider to be challenging views on the faith and aspects of it. And one would be that karma is an Eastern philosophy and it doesn't line up Christianity because in Christianity, everything's predetermined, all the outcomes there are all planned and God's plan is there for you. I don't necessarily take that approach. I think that free will in itself almost is karma. Yep. because we have the free will as human beings to make choices each choice either has a positive or a negative reaction depending on how we interact with each other so on my personal philosophy is that karma is a very real thing that is actually rooted in Christianity through free will oh absolutely it's something we've forgotten it's kind of been co-opted and changed through oh, you know, the institution of faith
0: of course i mean i mean if you just pick apart the if i mean if you just if you have a discussion with others and just like have a deep you know, theological or both a theological and philosophical discussion when it comes to the nature of sin and redemption, it ultimately ends up being karma anyway. Like it's it's essentially the root of the same thing. And this is how like Hinduism sort of like looks at religion. And this is why it's built in the way it is. So like in Hinduism, there's so many different sects of Hinduism. Like there's, you've got like uh, Shaivite Hinduism, uh, Vaishnavite hinduism and uh, there's so there's so many and then within those sort of like major sects of hinduism then you have even like mo- a minor sects of that particular like aspect of that faith where it's more localized to the region so certain regions have got local deities that are supposed to be like sort of um uh, represented as the physical manifestation of a particular sort of like a uh, greater deity that existed in that area at that time and that person did good so they showed the divine qualities of a particular deity in order to be referred to as that deity and then worship exists at that site and i've seen it all over and it's and it's wild man like you've got so in you know that you might have seen it, but recently in the last, I think, five or so months, the largest Hindu temple outside of India was built in America. Was this it happened. Canada? Uh, oh, maybe it was Canada. Not the one with the big... Um, oh, yeah, okay, that's the one I was thinking yeah, of. Right, that's, yeah, that's that's a separate one. They built, like, the largest... Um, they They built another temple, the largest temple. It might be in Florida, might be in Texas, it's somewhere in the US, and that temple is um, built and operated by the Swaminarians and the Swaminarians are another sect of Hinduism. So they wear like all orange, like people might think they're Buddhist monks, but they're not, but anyway, um, you know, and they take a slightly different approach to Hinduism where they like sort of separate this idea of the divine feminine and the divine masculine. And this is what Hinduism has built into its like sort of root fabric is that both the feminine and the masculine play the most vital roles when it comes to the nature of the fabric of society, the sort of spiritual aspects of society. There's no separation ultimately between um, man and woman when it comes to the nature of like social cohesion and spiritual faith, but their roles that they play are slightly different from one another. And it's, It's interesting to see how it behaves in the sort of social fabric, at least the places that I went to. Like, I I can't talk to, like, you know, South India. So, like, Kerala, South India is wildly different to, like, the Punjab in northwestern India. Wildly different. First and foremost, Kerala is like a communist state. So, everyone's, like, young, hip, you know, they're sort of, like what you would think is and yeah it is actually a communist state the party that runs a congress is actually a, a communist party um and they're sort of brown melbourneians yeah it's kind of like melbourne it really is in a sense um but there's like a lot of problems that go on there yeah they got like grooming gangs so these are like um you know i'll refer anyone to watch like a couple of you know sort of uh movies slash documentaries if people are interested um, there's the Cashmere Files and the other one is the Kerala Story, which came out last year and I went and saw at the Chadston Shopping Centre. Um, and that was very good. And basically it sort of describes this this sort of uh, sort of groups that go around and like force convert individuals through the sort of application of like drugs and manipulation. Um, and these like people end up like in places like Syria where they end up as slaves, they end up like pa- um, working as like sort of um, first line of defense for uh, radicalized, uh, r- what would you call it, um, uh, like radicalized mercenary groups, uh, which is really interesting as well. And so a lot of these people are coming from India and they're ending up in places in the Middle East um, as almost like cannon fodder.
1: So they're um, being forced converted
0: into Islam
1: in this particular region. Correct.
0: Yeah. 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 <clears throat> so it's it's sort of interesting. They're they very interesting documentaries. They received a lot of when that one came out, the Kerala story. A lot of things happened in the UK. A lot of things happened in Kerala. There was like buildings that got like fucking burnt. Like there was a church. There was a there was a, oh no sorry it was a a Hindu a Hindu temple in a place called Leicester in London. Um, I don't know the full nature of like what had taken place but there was essentially like a church that was set on fire and stuff like that And this came out after um that film was released but i'm getting ahead of myself well now now
1: that's okay now i've got to ask this question because it's just naturally flowing on a lot of people often say that christianity is far too nice and accepting of other religions and you'll see the extreme right say and they'll use the whipping dog that is Islam and Muslims want to kill everyone. Islam's bad. And they use that as a scapegoat. But I'm just thinking of like the Indian context now. Where do you think India could possibly go in say a spiritual war side of things? We think of a spiritual war and a, a holy war as being Abrahamic faith versus Islam. But what happens with Hinduism in the fold there? Because arguably Pakistan would still be part of India today if it wasn't for the English. And building rudimentary lines and um, kicking people out of certain regions and putting them in Pakistan. So do you think India has the capability to, look, they've done it up until now, like the whole idea of cultural assimilation, Islamic invasion through religion and theology, that's happened across the Middle East, the East, parts of Europe, and India for the most part has kind of remained unscathed, but Islam still has a foothold there. Do you see that kind of, being to the detriment of India at some point, because you know Hinduism does, in a lot of ways, like Christianity, seem to be very accepting of the other, of and acknowledging other peoples and being respectful of people. Do you think that could be to their detriment?
0: Um, I think in some ways, especially it...
1: with situations like this, kind of grooming game, yeah, that correct. People. I,
0: I think, I think in some ways, I think in some ways it will. Um, I think, uh in the more heated contested areas um, where there's a lot more um, sort of younger uh, Muslims and Hindu and young Hindu men as well. So you've got like a reaction. So you've got, I've got to take a step back to sort of go forward. So you've got a reaction to that as well in India um, and abroad, but it's mainly local to India. <clears throat> and that's like the national Hindu movement, the Hindutva movement. And that comes in many forms. Like it's looking at like Australia, like the first Australian movement, or like that's kind of like the Marga movement. It comes, it manifests in a few different sort of forms. It manifests in the form of the extremist view where like there's a couple of young Hindu guys that like are now like actually standing up and saying, no, fuck you. And anything that happens in their neighborhoods, they're the first ones to like be there to sort of like, um, you know, either sort the shit out by physical means or by any other means. Uh whatever that happens, like they're the ones there. They're like the first line of sort of defense in these sort of like pushes. But they're all they're all like of individual choice. It's not like um it's not like there's a group out there. It's it's how would I describe it? It's not like there's an organization that exists that is like pushing pushing Hindutva. But it's something that's built there because of this sort of conceptual idea of Bharat and Bharat is the Sanskrit term for what translates to, in English, India today. And as long as there's the Vedic astrology where they talk and and Jain astrology and all of these that all have these same conceptual ideas of motherland, of homeland, and this is where I think like, and going back to your, your sort of thoughts on why Christians don't have this sort of different approach when it comes to nature of being a bit more sort of um uh forward when it comes to nature of not letting too much of another faith sort of come into your own sort of space christianity doesn't have a conceptual idea of motherland or homeland it has the idea of heaven right as a place that all humanity can be a part of together but it's a metaphysical place. It's not real. It's And I say that obviously from a physical perspective. Well, not... Even
1: even the idea of the church is metaphysical. We've kind of got Correct. the idea that modern-day Christians, Presbyterians, Catholics, Orthodox, whatever denomination you want to look at, mm-hmm. the, the main conceived idea by your weekend Christians they sit down in the pews and they pay their tithes is that the church is a physical building that you go to, mm-hmm. where if you look at the earliest tenets of Christianity the, the faith that kind of changed the Roman Empire and forced Constantine to adopt it as the national religion was that people could go anywhere and be anywhere, and that was the church. That was the faith. The yeah. church, the Holy Spirit, the the sacred seed that is within every single Christian, yeah. and that's what kind of that's like. And you're spot on. We don't have the idea of a homeland because it doesn't exist for Christians. No it's within us at all times. So we can right. kind of be anywhere and
0: everywhere. Well, but- that's it. I mean, Jesus himself said, the kingdom of the kingdom of heaven is within you, right? And that idea that, the, and this is what has always sort of been a bit of a hurdle for me when we come to the Roman Catholic Church is the inconsistencies. And the inconsistencies really sort of like have made or breaked it, especially in the 21st century. Like it has certainly made or break, made or broken the Roman Catholic Church. Like it's a bit strange when you see like the Pope, like bring in, you know um transgenders into you know the sort of space of that and it just goes like okay is this part of like that thing we were discussing earlier that sort of like globalist mm-hmm. sort of direction probably but this is where like this is why you know sort of going back to why hinduism sort of i think will continue to exist for a very long time is because it has that idea of motherland of homeland um but islam's a bit of a finicky one because islam's islam had... some idea of homeland is everywhere. Well, everywhere it, in the world Islam, is, is, is a world a religion. Of... Yeah, correct. So it's more of like a spreading of faith. So that's the only way that it can become a world religion. Its its ultimate form is for everyone to be Muslim. And that's, you know, you, you, you definitely see it in terms of its expanse from the humble beginnings with Muhammad all the way through his grandchildren and beyond. And you've seen the expanse go into... North Africa, you're seeing the expanse in many cases like, you know, throughout the Crusades, go into Europe, or prior to the Crusades go into Europe, and then be sort of quote-unquote excommunicated out of Europe, and then obviously now in the 21st century, back into Europe and across Asia as well. Um, And it's, and obviously Central Europe and many other places. Pretty much it is touched almost everywhere, but obviously in some places it has completely changed the cultural fabric from what it was to what it is now. Um and it's hard to sort of like wrap my head around it. And it's and I've read I've read enough of Quranic literature, whether that is the Quran, in a few different versions or whether that is some of the Hadith. Now admittedly there's thousands of fucking Hadiths. This isn't like, you know, this isn't like I'm I'm certainly no like scholar theologist when it comes to the nature of reading the Hadiths. But at least of everything that I've read, it has this very refined way of being able to sort of propagate itself into environments as as a religion, as like a spreading religion. That's what Islam has a very good... It's a, it, it has a very excellent way at doing it, but that way that it does it, in my view, t- tethers on the lines of human morality. That's that's what I can say now. I'm not going to go too deep. So but yeah.
1: I'm just kind of connecting dots here in my own brain because I'm loving this conversation. Anything about culture, ancient history, theology, it blows my mind because it helps me piece together my own research. When you mentioned that India kind of has, and Hinduism has this, it's literally a base. It has a basis in the geographical region it's from. I often think that maybe what we see of the Abrahamic faiths today, more so um, the Hebrews compared to Christianity, because Christianity is a uh, a religion without a nation. It's everywhere. It's within all people. It's almost as if the Hebrews, before they became monotheistic religion, that when that was Yahwism, they had these multiple gods and they were kind of expelled from their region of the Middle East. They necessarily didn't have a centralised location either. And this is just me purely speculating that we know the, the Hebrews wandered around the world for quite a long time. And this was priests, any ideas of slavery or kind of theological ideas of that. They were wandering people and that's what they were known for. And they were known for adopting and and incorporating themselves into other cultures. So I'm thinking that it's very possible that a lot of these early Hebrews came across the ideas of Hinduism and having... The nation state or the home or the geographical lo- location, and they adopted that idea and kind of weaponized it for like a modern state of israel and you can kind of see that in the scriptural ideas of it went from we need a homeland to a homeland needs a king, and mm-hmm. it's always been the downfall of the israeli or the the Jewish people that they asked for a king and they didn't need one because they had a god yeah it's almost like you're seeing this these ideas and This is where the commonalities kind of appear across multiple faiths and peoples around the world. We have all these things that connect us that we don't tend to realise, but that just stood out for me that we have Hinduism, which is very geographically located, and then you have like a newer culture, a newer faith at that time, or a parallel faith at that time, which was a wandering faith, a wandering people, suddenly so adamantly connect themselves to a land that they claim was
0: gifted to them by God. Yeah, it's um, it's a bit of an odd one as well because you know the people that they proclaim they like sort of um, ascended, descended, whichever direction it doesn't really matter. Like sort of came from from that sort of like land of Canaan. Um, you know, you can go and look at there's uh his oh gosh, his name will come to me. He's an ancient Jewish historian. Um and uh jo- Flavius Flavius Josephus. I think that's his name, um, and he talked about the group. He basically talked about um, the group of early Israelites that came into the land of Canaan, and those early <clears throat> those early Israelites that came into the land of Canaan after they like you know sort of like crossed the Red Sea, went to the Sinai Mountains, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then kept on going. Um, they were like. And he correlates this with some early archaeological work done and this is going back like you know we're talking like what a thousand years or something like that at least this more. far ago a bit more I'm talking, this Flavius Josephus guy is somewhere between you know a particular time period but it's in ancient times and there was like early archaeological work done and he correlates um, particular uh, particular objects between artanism and between the what was coming out of the land of Canaan, um, which was, as you said, like this sort of um, migration and adoption sort of uh, adherence. Um, And it's just interesting. And I think when it comes to sort of, you know, the Dome on the Rock, when it comes to like King Solomon's Temple and this sort of stuff, you know, I often think to myself, like some of these sites, you know, what if they are from, A pre time. And it's just all it has come down to is the acquisition of knowledge of the ancients that, like, happened to, whether intentionally leave or not, is a different discussion like, I obviously believe in, like, I'm obviously a firm believer in, like, the Younger Dryas hypothesis, you know, sorry, it's theory now, the Younger Dryas theory with, you know, the sort of, like, you know, um, Noah's Ark and the Flood sort of situation and all these, like, civilizations across the planet having the same sort of, like, tell-on story. And I wonder if, like, all this is at at the sort of, like, root core of, of it all is a spiritual war based in the acquisition of, like, ancient left knowledge. And I think that, to sort of claim claim dominance of an area that you didn't for all intensive purposes you didn't come from initially i mean if we we're to really like go back if we we're really to like retrace our steps and go into the nature of like the old testament okay well you came out of egypt so why aren't you like going into egypt and you know turning egypt into israel
1: so I'm I'm gonna throw a, a kind of a my own hypothesis I've I've kind of been meddling with. And it's kind of a disconnect between the old testament and the new. Um a lot of people will say you can't be a Christian, you can't pick or choose between the testaments, you have to take both. Where yep. being an historian and a conspiracy theorist before finding faith, I can't that the two the disconnect is just too much for me and I'm I wrestle with the written word to try and understand every day. And my current hypothesis is that we know biblically the Canaanites are kind of referred to as the bad guys. You know, the original Israelites are kind of lost their way. And when uh, Moses' tribe was, his ancestors were taken as slaves into Egypt, there was this big disconnect and they became corrupted and they, they built black Canaan. This yeah. evil place where they would sacrifice children, use blood, magic, all these evil things. Well, the people of the slaves of Egypt were called the Canaanites. They were still the Canaanites. A lot of the... The plagues of Egypt and the means and the methods in which the Israelites kept themselves safe was through blood magic. It's a lot of factors which from a modern day Christian perspective you would see as almost, I don't know, hate saying this word, demonic or evil or black magic approaches to things. Then I think about the way in which the people left Egypt. We know they were still slaves to a degree, but they were paid. They were paid people, and to a certain extent, they looked after. Like, how well looked after as a slave is debatable enough. This was thousands of years ago. But they left Egypt, and the first thing they do is you see the older generations of those people who left Egypt begin to die because it takes 40-plus years of wandering the desert. That gives them time to build up a a militant approach to their faith. So that, And they start having families. And, and what do they do? As they get closer to their promised land, they kill and destroy all the cities in the way. And a lot of Christians would say these were cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These were places in which people were um, worshipping false gods and idols and they were bad people Of and God gave them the right to crush them and knock them down. But at the same time, it's almost as if you think of it as the invert what if it wasn't God speaking to Moses and it was another entity, another entity trying to build an army, an army that could go through these lands, wipe out its competitors, not to say they weren't evil, but to wipe out its competitors so it could get a foothold. Oh, and what yeah. if Christ is the real God and the true son it's of it's, God, it's and he's been sent, and he's been sent because so many people have already fallen for the deception. The deception's yeah. already happened.
0: I. Uh, don't disagree. It's interesting you say that. You know the you know the little story about um King Solomon having like magical powers? Yes. So in the Quran it's described that Solomon was gifted those magical powers via the subjugation of jinn. So the jinn are like centric... And in the old testament it's demons, so Yeah, they call yeah. it demons, but in, in, in the Quran they refer to them as Jin, and Jin are like a um, like an elemental, aren't they? They're like a they're like a sentient being that exists in another plane of dimension. So like sort of reality, and, and this goes into like sort of Jainism because they're very like sort of uh, have like deeper leanings into sort of the the energetic mechanisms of of the universe. Um, and there's this like belief system that's also shared within islam is that there's rituals that are there's rituals involved uh that are able to bring in beings from these other dimensions into this reality and the jinn manifest as like a, a um as in a smokeless fire so it's described in the quran there's like a ritual as they don't describe the ritual in in whole but it's um it involves like a, it involves smokeless fire it involves like a room a completely dark room there's some words that are shared and you're able to sort of like summon jin and then you but in that sort of summoning you subjugate them to your will and you can get them to do whatever but then there's like jin that escape out into the real world and jin can manifest themselves or like um take on the form of a human being but they're walking around and they're like either working or they're in like a particular position of power and authority and they siphon energy. So when you summon a jinn and you bind it to a, a being to sort of get it to do what you want it to do, in this case, Solomon having magical powers build the temple, yeah, build the temple at the behest of the jinn who are under the subjugation of the muhammadians they weren't called muslims then muhammadians um is this sort of um strange sort of thought when we go back to the conversation of like demon you know demon worship and blood sacrifice and you know you can obviously you know pull things from south america hell you can even pull things from hinduism as well man from india as well you know there's in india in hinduism you've got you know, the light side of Hinduism that everyone sees is like Hurry Hurry Krishna. But you've got the dark side, you've got the left-hand side of Hinduism, which is Agori or gaudyism. It's this very raw sort of perverse nature of like how to connect with something that for all intensive purposes is divine, how it manifests as divinity, being able to sort of like connect with the energy that we cannot see, connect with that thing that creates all of this and they've got a very sort of, like, fucked up way of doing it. But they, that's, they've they got their all, own
1: thing. I don't know if it's the same sect that I've seen, but it almost strikes me as, like, the Sabbatean approach to Judaism where it's redemption through sin. So they do the most heinous, disgusting things to try and get there. And, like I said, can't recall which sect this was, but it's so vivid in my memory because it was a group of Indian men and there was a live goat and they were biting physical chunks out of the live goat as it was yep. screaming.
0: Yeah i i i've never I've never seen it or bore witness to it. I would not be surprised that that exists in forms. I've seen videos of a few things like biting like a chicken's head off, and it's always maybe a bit you know like I'm like ah, oh, you know, I had a little thought like is this what I signed up for? You know what I mean like but at the end of the day, like I'm not gonna be the one i'm not gonna be the i'm not gonna be the one to participate in that if I bear witness to it i'm gonna take the approach of like Uh, someone that I historically I think is a really cool character and his name's uh, Sir Charles James Napier and he participated as a commander in the conquest of Hyderabad uh, during the sort of like Anglo-Sikh wars and he's also the person that stopped the I forget the name of the tradition but it's the one that when the husband dies the woman burns herself in a fire like it was a it was a very common practice in a very, very particular part. It was a very localized practice. It wasn't like widespread across India by any stretch of the imagination, but he bore witness to that. But he was also well, well learned in Hinduism as well. Like he, he read the Bhagavad Gita, he, you know, he read the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, all this and that. And he bore witness to this thing taking place. It was just by happenstance. And he said, um, and he put a ban on it in front of them and they got, and, and the community got completely upset and I'd be paraphrasing like the sort of conversation that took place, but he basically said to them, it's like, this region is under the command of the British forces. And whilst under the command of the British forces, I'm going like essentially put a ban on it because this is what we deem as illegal, you know, within the British empire. So he flat out banned it, but it was for a common good, but he was also the kind of cat that, didn't go out and like intervene with other people's like affairs as well. You know, if, and that, this is the thing in India is you've got so many different microcosm sects of Hinduism, many of which are purely localized to like tiny little rural communities. But, um, yeah, going back, going back to the Jews, (laughs) um, yeah, I, I don't know, bro. Like, I don't even know, like, you know, we talk about, like, what happened back then all the way till now with this Gaza-Israel thing. It's it's not a good look. It's not a good look for anyone, firstly. And when we cycle back to the previous conversation about what was happening on social media, where it completely, because I remember you'd asked me, you said, what did you see sort of, like, coming back from, you know, sort of India, at least with the social media side of things. And, man, that Israel-Gaza thing completely fractured the Twitter group. Like, the just, the just the space groups where everyone was getting together completely fractured it. People went off into the pro-Palestine community. People went off into the pro-Israel community. And it just, like, I don't even know, man. It's it's just weird to see what's sort of happening in the world right now, like sort of coming back from India because as I said, I was sort of like disconnected for, not disconnected, but took a step back and just seeing how it all sort of has played out since I've come back is very, very interesting.
1: Well, there's a, a very prominent Australian that hosts uh, spaces that we know that I won't mention. Um, very much on the Q side of things. Uh, said because I'm very much a perpetual skeptic for my own reasons, because I, I have to question things. I have to pull things apart to rebuild it, to understand I say my mind works. So often I'll be called a fence sitter. And mm-hmm. I was told hey. I need to hurry up and pick a fucking side because we're in a spiritual war and you won't get a choice. And I thought to myself, oh, religiously. Yeah, that that is true. We are in a spiritual war, but when we're talking about wars between kingdoms and principalities, we do have a choice if that war happens or not.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If, if
1: we if we can sit in the middle and see things objectively, why do we have to participate? Which I think that kind of comes back to the the start, the whole question of things are being pushed in one direction. It's pushing into that direction of a a war and forcing people to pick a side that I don't think we necessarily have to. Dark exists, light exists, but on that spectrum, the majority of that that line is various shades of grey.
0: Oh, for sure. I think um, I think people feel people succumb to social pressure very easily very easily and when it's in your face on social medium and on the television and the television and the social medium is is placating to this sort of weird aspect of interacting with people which is like from a, almost like a manipulative side of things which is like you, mu- it's 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 almost like you either must feel bad, you have to feel bad, um, you know, you must follow this, you have to follow this. It's like very directive in its sort of like approach. This sort of like mainstream medium, you know, people want to call it like, uh, okay, lefties would say like fucking Murdoch media, I, you know, the right the righties would say like News Corp, like whatever it might be, that sort of like that mainstream approach of like how to sort of interact in the social fabric. It's really hit a very strange area where people aren't even willing to have like reasonable conversations anymore, bro. Like, you know, Aussie Cossack, he ran a space the other night and I just happened to like open up Twitter when he was running it. And I saw that Australian talk was in there and I jumped in and it's some debate with this fucking chick named Syrian girl. And I remember seeing her months ago, months, 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 months ago about all the Andrew Tate stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I sort of agree with her on the Andrew Tate stuff. I think he's a bit of a fucking dick. But now I go look at her profile and it is just exactly the same as what I'd seen from this Suleiman character, this Khaleesi character, the Mario character, all these characters that gravitate in the same uh, social bubble. Just peddling the same shit that the Israel side is doing as well, which is just a bunch of fucking photos with a little screen cap of whatever text it might be, and then push that out onto a medium of 300,000, 500,000, a million people. And because you have so many people that are already like super fucking paranoid coming out of COVID, irrespective of whatever your thoughts are on COVID, whether that's oh, the person's not wearing a fucking mask or the person's wearing a fucking mask. Either way, that's sort of like paranoia begun the cycle. The, Ukraine, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, this sort of push a narrative of uh, world war just on the fucking approach, you know? And then that wasn't sort of playing out in the direction that these, uh, you know, sort of higher ups are sort of peddling. But it's having the desired effect when it comes to the nature of anxiety, social anxiety, in fact. And it's building this strange mental notch in people's minds where they're so fucking anxious to have a conversation with one another, even if they don't agree. And you remember you said earlier, like, your neighbor will agree with you on fucking 99% of things, but you don't agree because he's a green supporter. You won't even have a fucking conversation with him. That's where it's at now. Like, that's all I see on Twitter now is that, like, they don't people won't even, like, grace the same spaces together, like, at all because of that. And I'm like, the people that did this the people that participated in this right from the higher ups these nation builders social discourse shapers government workers politicians that are play you know putting in these policies i don't think they have any fucking clue what it is actually doing to the social fabric i genuinely don't or they do know and they're fucking evil or they're just they they don't know and they're completely ignorant to what is actually sort of happening within the social fabric and it just seems like the perspective of the australian social fabric it is tearing itself apart and the fact that it's tearing itself apart is why you have these like quasi um sort of uh movements like the national socialist movement you know, like Tommy Tommy Sewell and the boys, like going up to Spring Street and throwing romans. You know, the fact that you've got that happening is because of what the government policies have been in place. And when you start fucking around with the social fabric, when it is, when it has been perfect in such form, and I'm not perfect is probably a heavy handed term to use, to be honest. But I would say the social fabric in Australia or the social fabric in the US or things like that was very good and, and, and meshed very well irrespective of the states and irrespective of the local cultures within those states. Melbourneian person's wildly different to someone in Adelaide and Adelaide person's wildly different to someone in Northern Territory or Perth or Brisbane for that matter or Nimbin or wherever. But when you start fucking with the social fabric on a macro level scale where you're causing division within its own country, like I remember seeing I remember seeing bullshit propaganda material on Twitter like about like separating Australia you know like sort of building this idea of like oh you know if you're not a labor supporter like we may as well just like cast everyone off to like one fucking state you know shit like the that the balkanized australia kind of right
1: and i i've fallen into that trap myself because i've seen the way politics is constantly used as a weapon that i've i've called often for Victoria regional Victoria which is everything but Melbourne essentially to be Mm. its own state because why should we kowtow to people from a city who don't understand lives and it makes sense but at the same time I see myself now I'm falling for a plan and you put an interesting perspective across that either they don't know they're doing this or they're doing it regardless of what the implications would be. they don't really care about what happens I tend to think they're not that stupid it's either a It's a controlled burn for them. They know what they're doing. I don't think it's a a situation of a child playing with matches in the hay bales and the the shed catching on fire for them. I think it's very controlled. It's very surgical in what they're doing. And you brought up the the, the, Saul and the boys, right? The whole idea. That kind of came up. It's been building, like you said. Historically, it's been building because of bad policies, and it's fested and allowed that to grow a genuine... um, grassroots community has had that views and kind of been building, but it's very easy for a a state paid actor to go in and nudge that group to go out in their black short shorts and throw Romans. And what's the result? We get salute bans, Roman salute bans. We get Nazi paraphernalia bans. We get state-based laws, which are going to make it easier for the government to intervene and stop people from being in public and ban them from life from public settings. Yeah. This is the weaponised side of things that I see. It's the the Hegelian dialectic again It seems to apply to nearly everything I see at the moment. I can't help but not see it.
0: I think it's ruptured Australia more violently. Uh, violently is probably the the worst word I could possibly use for this. I think it's ruptured the Australian social fabric, but I think it's I think it's ruptured it much faster than it has other Western nations. Well, the state's
1: had a a, a 40 to 60 year head start and they built that up over time
0: to a point. And I think that, and I've said this on Spaces before, is that my thoughts on like the sort of political landscape within Australia has always been for the citizen as a very docile one. It hasn't been like a charged one. That like political charge, that sort of like political drive, I didn't see that begin... To sort of come into being until donald trump came into power when donald trump came into power that begun to set a precedent across the entire west not just in america because you know for all intensive purposes and i don't think anyone would disagree with this i mean if someone does like please fucking send me a message and, and tell me what your argument is but i think america has this strange way of influencing all the other western nations through cultural change, through policymaking, through geo, geopolitical policymaking, um, economic reform, etc., etc., et, cetera, et cetera. Um, And whatever tends to happen in the United States tends to have an onset effect in the rest of the West. I think for the most part, since so the sort of like humble beginnings of the internet, that probably came to like a four-year window where it seemed like the rest of the West followed the suit of America every sort of like four years afterwards and that would be things like policy making that would be things like economic reform that would be things like regulatory framework around anything to do with logistics and tariffs and la, la 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 list goes on but since donald trump it's compounded and expedited and it has had a hemorrhaging effect on the australian social fabric and i truly think that the average Australian, because whether you like it or not, like you can say like, I don't care about politics, but politics certainly does care about you. And either way, it's going to have an influence on your life, whether you like it or not. And unless you're willing to, unless you're willing to go completely off the grid and live in the bush and be completely disconnected from the internet, you're going to always have politics and the sort of um the effect of the cause the cause being economic reform and stuff like that because it all it all uh you know sort of seeps out into different faucets the internet as a prime example the nbn as a fucking perfect example um but no matter like sort of what happens i think Oh, my God. I'm so sorry, dude. I lost my train of thought.
1: That's okay. Well, I'll take over because I've been wanting to yeah, jump please, in here. That's please, okay. Please.
0: Well, you look at the
1: MAGA movement. The MAGA movement has a massive following That's in right. Australia. And this is the thing that interests me because, like you said, America exports culture. Yep. America exports politics, exports entertainment. The West seems to jump on board with this. They used to have a term called Americanization. That quickly evolved into globalization because they didn't want it to look like America was the be-all and end-all. But it very much is. But the thing that I can't seem to grasp is why someone who claims to be a nationalist Australian, someone who has pride in their country as a patriot, would follow a MAGA-first approach. Yes, we can see that things, when good things happen in America, they tend to have good implications around the rest of the world. But why should you have to wait on another country to do that? Why can't you stand on your own two feet and have some national pride and build it oneself? Instead of having to wait for a saviour to come along or a nation state to do it first, we've killed it off.
0: We've killed it off, bro. Go to the Alfred Hospital, mate. They don't have a single. They don't have a single. That's a Australian publicly funded hospital with Australian business donors. There's not a single Australian flag out the front or anywhere within the hospital. There's an LGBTQ flag, there's um, a Aboriginal flag and a Torres Strait Islander flag, and then there's like hello in every single language out the and out the front and i just you know when i went there recently i was shocked man i was dumbfounded i'm like walking through they've got like parks with all like australian companies that have like donated like rooms and stuff like that i'm like you guys aren't even representing australia and i'm only using that as like a very small example and, and for many for anyone that listens and they might think oh that's anecdotal go down there yourself and see i it's promise all- you
1: It's representative of a lot of local councils as well. There's local councils that no longer have the Australian flag. You're speaking a lot of truth there, but I'm going to play devil's advocate to a certain degree in that, yeah, that has been eroded over time, the idea of Australian nationalism. It's kind of become a faux pas, considered a racist bogan thing, like the propaganda, and that's been fantastic for their approach and their push on it. So we kind of feel like we're reliant on a MAGA movement to get back our national pride, but the danger in doing that is... What we end up with isn't our national pride and identity of a bygone era. What we end up with is a Pax Americana American rehashing of what the Australian culture should look like. It's not our own unique culture and our own unique
0: thought process on how things should be. That's why I don't trust the MAGA movement either. I I don't trust it either. Man, I went to that protest. uh, It was at like the Fitzroy Gardens, middle of September 2021. There was over 300,000 people there, bro. It was packed. It was packed. But you know the one thing that shocked me more than anything? There was a fucking boatload of MAGA flags. A boatload of Trump flags. I was shocked by how many Trump flags I saw. And I understood why. When I saw that, like something something clicked in my mind where I've gone, oh, okay. This is like the reaction. This is that onset reaction that the West has because the West follows suit with America. And if America has been peddling the military industrial complex forever, and I'm using that as a, as a as a rudimentary example, obviously the rest of the West will sort of follow in that same direction when it comes to, you know, you know economic policies, you know, political reform or, or military reform, whatever it might be. And now you see this, this effect happen in Australia because of that movement, and now it's having this onset flow. And I'd wonder, like, does Australia really want to become America? I don't want it to become America in all regards, but there's certain aspects, there's certain qualities when we look at the, uh, the American constitution that adhere to that moral compass in us, that sort of ethical compass in us when it comes to the nature of who we are and how we can care and defend for our loved ones. And I think that at its root core is like, obviously what sets America apart from everyone and to adhere to that. And I think that's why the West adheres to that because it's like the rest of the West wants to have like the Commonwealth, right? The British empire wants to have that like moral good, but they can't stomach it. They can't stomach that idea that like, oh, we we have to give absolute liberty and freedom to the individual. Like they can't they can't stomach that. And I personally think that's why the Commonwealth is going to splinter and fragment. I mean, your boy's on his way out. Last I checked from like two days ago, apparently yeah. he's got cancer now. So he's Old definitely sausage on the way, fingers is on I'll, his way. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I just reckon he's got a bad case of diabetes to be honest. I reckon he's just sitting there drinking tea all day, smashing the sugar, eating the shortbread bickies, you know, just not really doing much. I suppose. I assume. I assume the sons are doing most of most of the legwork, or he's got a couple of other people to do it all for him. But I just think that the Commonwealth that 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 idea of the Commonwealth, obviously with the wealth being the land, the territory, <clears throat> is going to separate. How it happens, I have no idea, because Australia's got crown land. So, like, if the Commonwealth was to splinter and fragment, what happens to that land? Does the does the government pay, you know, King 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 Charles or you know King Henry or whomever or King Edward or whomever? Does he end up paying them worth of the land value? Because that's that's what our wealth is, right? That's the whole idea of the Commonwealth is we've got wealth based in the Crown's title. That's where our money comes from. Isn't that where all the bonds come from? Is it all based on how much money? we can make off of land valuation, off of the crown. I don't know, it might sound strange, but I think that's like what the roots of it, roots of it is when it comes to the nature much. of the Commonwealth. And, and, and the th- idea that the wealth all flows back to the, the crown. Well, there's that as well. And, you know, when you think about the crown and how it's behaved with Australia in sort of, you know, the more recent years, it, it, it definitely seems like the crown has been pretty much hands-off for a while um i don't know if it was from the time when the queen dissolved parliament maybe then maybe after that like sort of fiasco maybe the maybe the royal families like dusted their hands with like trying to intervene in anything maybe they're just like oh well you know whatever i i, I don't know but i just well, is
1: this is my idea and like all politics is bought and sold and it's built and it's a facade like you mentioned the american constitution and the liberties and the rights, the the rights afforded to you as a human being by God are represented in that constitution. Now, this is my thinking around that. It's flipping fantastic. I'd love to have that in our own constitution, but that's me falling into the trap of politics again. Yeah. And I feel like humanity kind of wised up to the idea that a king or a queen or an emperor or a sultan could be God's representative on earth. People got to a level of understanding both theologically spiritually historically where they kind of went you know this actually doesn't sit right why does that guy that literally lives in an ivory tower get to control the land us and everything within it
0: so they need about that
1: so they need to present something to us that's an alternative which they still control politics you know i've been listening to a lot of kanye west lately (laughs) (laughs) are you comparing me to kanye (laughs) I couldn't be more different. A white ginger and you've got Kanye West. We might use some of the same slurs for a certain type of people's small <laughs> hands,
0: but that's about it. He says there's a, there's a song. I, 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 I couldn't even tell you the name of it off the top of my head. I know I've got it there on like my saved list, but someone else says this in the track, and it's about this idea of freedom and that freedom is a is a ploy the sort of concept of freedom as a ploy, it was supposed to be, you know, it was separated from what he refers to as like the mother country. I don't know what the mother country is. My brain immediately goes to Atlantis, but that's like me going (laughs) wildly fucking out there, you know, talking about like acquisition of knowledge and all this and that. And how powerful the word is, like, you know, sort of creating words to do something. To sort of push the direction. Misinformation as a great example. Disinformation as another great example. terrorist as another example. They're all great words that have been brought up within the political sphere of history in order to push a civilization into a, into a very specific direction or the direction that the powers that be want that civilization to sort of go within. They don't want it to go too far away from the from the fence they want to keep it you know a bit more localised you know obviously for sort of implementing their own stuff you know whether that is for absolute tyranny in the end where we're all being you know sort of born in pods and capsules in Switzerland um, or whether that's we're getting our dicks and boobs chopped off you know whatever, however that seems to manifest but it seems like it's here it seems like it's already here that's why I say it's a runaway train because they've already got the pods set up in Switzerland. They're ready to start pumping babies out of pods, like ready to ready to go. You know, like, oh shit, it's a really Matrix times. Where's our fucking Neo, bro? Where's our Jesus?
1: Well, well, it's like Homer Simpson on the monorail. At least we need a rope and a W as our anchor <laughs> to kind of pull us back in.
0: <laughs> we'll get our W. We will get our W. I think the W is coming. I think the W is inevitable because it has to be. Like that's the whole, and it's interesting, like Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, even even I believe Christianity or Old Testament has this sort of like conceptual idea of like uh cycle of the universe and that, you know, whether we want to throw it out there that the universe just means the expansive universe or as in because we'd obviously have to go into like the etymology and stuff like that, or whether it like truly means like the root core is like mother earth, like this place that we all sort of live within. And you don't want that to get like, you know, too far out of balance, but either way it's going to like end and Buddhism and Hinduism. So in Buddhism, there's this conceptual idea. It's called the, the bhava chakra, the will of life um, in like ancient Proto-Armenian, uh, they've got this conceptual idea of the will of eternity um, and they're these ideas that sort of have this rise and fall of civilizations like it's it's almost like it's this inevitable ev- inevitable byproduct of the human the human condition because whichever way you want to cut and dice it, we have a spiritual framework, In every regard, every single culture on the planet that has existed that has had a spiritual acumen associated with it has had a sort of moral framework of how to adhere within the social sort of confines of this physical space we exist in. And within that, there's always going to be chaos and there's always going to be order. But the chaos always ends up winning. Battles in order for the cycle to begin again. So these 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 civilizations will always rise up and they will always fall and they'll always rise up and they'll always fall. And right now in Hinduism they refer to it as the Kali Yuga. We're in the Kali Yuga. We're at like the end days. This is the collapse of this is the collapse of like peace and prosperity amongst humans. This is but.
1: And then Kali Yuga is that when. Is it Krishna always comes back in some kind of form?
0: Ha. so at the end, at the end of the Kali Yuga, it's prophesized that um, Krishna will come back um, riding down the Himalayas on a white horse, and he will be referred to as Kalki, and he's the final, and he's the pro- final prophet uh, or the final, ma- the final um, reincarnation of Vishnu. Uh, before the next cycle begin or before the new cycle begins. And that Vishnu will be the sort of commander in chief of stemming the tide of chaos. And you can go into some, like, into certain texts, like you can go into Tibetan texts, like Tibetan Buddhism, and there's different representations, like, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism, Vishnu and, Bud- Vishnu and Buddha, like they're sort of interflowing, they're sort of intersectional, like one can represent the other. But that also goes with other deities as well. And so when you take that perspective, that also includes all the chaos that goes with that. You know, people imagine, you know, you've got Kali, but then you've got variations of Kali. You've got the fierce Kali, which is like full on like holding heads, swords, like crazed. And in this end time, people will manifest these deities who will essentially formulate a force that will stem the tide of of chaos and tyranny and evil in order for the cycle to begin once again. And the Nazis believed that Hitler was Kalki.
1: Well, I was going to say, here's a wild thought then is the likes of the MAGA movement and Trump, a manifestation because people needed that (laughs) right wing traditional pushback to try and stop the destruction. I can't
0: imagine Trump going down a hill on a fucking white horse. No,
1: it'd be a donkey and... (laughs) He's, I mean, he did an he elevator. Like a...
0: Yeah, true. It is an ele- he did it on an elevator, so it's not out of realm of possibility. But I can't imagine him cl- coming down the Himalayas on a white horse. But yeah, it's... But, well, it's here's, right,
1: an, here's an interesting thing that I found out recently on my other podcast, Conspiracy Theatre 3000. We're breaking down the film, Leave the World Behind, and there's the big commercial shipping uh, container ship that beaches itself, has a white line on it, white yeah. line of Judah, Trump was going to make the MAGA movement a political group that opposed Republicans and Democrats, and its symbol was going to be a white line. In Christianity, the white line is a symbol for the opening of the sacred the last seals that usher in the end times. And this, this um, we're gonna to have to do a part two of this because we barely even touched on India. Yeah, we're just going dude. down I theological know. political discussions, but I think it's been quite good. I'm gonna end you on this one though, question. Mm-hmm. So it's the idea of great resets and multiple cultures have existed and the chaos has kind of taken over to a point where it's caused the reset and the new timeline started. What if a great reset, if we're going to call it that, isn't something you actually see in your lifetime, but it takes, say, 400 years to occur. But the reset we're currently living in it, we just never actually see it because we don't recognise it. It's like no one actually knows you're living through, say, um, a cultural revolution. People don't know they're in a cultural cultural revolution until the history books are written. Correct. It's the it's the reflection on what's happened. That's when people give it these terms. So what if we're only, say, 150 years into a five hundred year cycle that that is the reset happening? It's so slow burning. By the time it's happened, the people who exist in the New World don't know it's happened. All they know is that their their grandparents' life was pretty good. Um their parents' life was pretty shit and theirs was terrible, but things are starting to get better. How would you even know
0: you're in a cycle if it's that slow moving? It's every two generations, man. Every two generations, by the third generation, people have completely forgotten what's happened anyway. Exactly. You know, it's it's crazy, because like, we we we're so fine and I say this with absolute love, of course, but human beings, like in comparison to The nature of the universe in terms of time in space and all this and that, we're very, very finite. So the we we tend to live in the here and now as opposed to like living in the future or living in the past. I mean, obviously, there's people that enjoy looking into the past, and there's obviously people that enjoy looking into the future. But how that ends up presenting itself is a wildly, wildly different thing. And I think that when it comes to you know the sort of end times. I think there's always going to be cult I think there's always going to be cultural end times when it comes to the nature of a governmental structure. I think that that becomes an in, in- inevitability um, especially if we look at the last like fifteen hundred to two thousand years across many countries that have like risen and fallen. I mean you can use like the Roman Empire obviously as as the most as the most barebone example of how it's sundered and split into East and Western Rome. And then from there, it just fragmented and fell apart. And, you know, within a very short amount of time, it became, you know, it's written in the history books. And I think when we look at that side of things, it certainly is a slow burn <clears throat> because as I said, it, it after two generations... People have completely forgotten about their forefathers, their forebearers, the politicians of the day, the policies that were implemented and stuff like that. I don't imagine 99.99999% of people would have the sort of up and go to go and like go and research this stuff and tell the, tell the people about it, la, 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 because people live in the now as opposed well, to... With the people the that
1: did it in those times, the conspiracy theorists or the people that would stand there saying the end is nigh because they were people who were a bit more knowledgeable on previous generations but to the people who are living in the now who have forgotten the say the sins of the father or forgotten the historical lived experiences of their forefathers, they don't have a conceptual understanding of what that was like because their life is the norm whether it's better or worse than their ancestors that's yeah. the norm for them so anyone presents something different is always going to look like someone who's challenging the status quo when really they're just speaking truth to reality of
0: what's existed. Just goes back to the human condition, brother. People get comfortable, man. People get comfortable in the in the here and now. In, in whatever faucet, whatever means that is, it doesn't it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which way you cut and dice it. People get very comfortable in the now. And like you said, to sort of to sort of bring something up to challenge that, oh man, especially in today's society where everyone's just super soft. Oh my God. Like, we're truly at the end days where people can't even have a conversation without wanting to, like, wring each other's necks because they have different political opinions about one another or, you know, oh, I support Israel because of X, Y, Z or I support Gaza because of X, Y, Z. Like, it's just completely torn the fabric, man. And I don't know where it ends, but, I mean, if we look at a like, sort of round this up with a sort of, like, greater sort of nature of a end times, I think it will be i think it will come in the form of i think it will come in the form of massive onset tectonic activity that will completely shift the geological landscape of continents and maybe even subcontinents and that will displace millions upon billions of hundreds of millions if not billions of people and i think and this will be a conversation for the next run is the planet is right on the precipice of doing what people would perceive in this lifetime as a permanent shift on long scale it's temporary but a shift in the in poles. poles in poles yeah and i think when that happens it's going and, and this is only from like my own my own research like as you know like i'm i love geology i'm absolutely fascinated in it like i'm absolutely fascinated in like macro scale ecosystems how they behave in the environment stuff like that so naturally i have to like look at sort of what happens below the surface what happens in the ocean what happens in the in the in the areas with flora, what happens you know areas where there's like you know hydrothermal activity and stuff like that whatever the case may be when the shift when the poles shift quote-unquote permanently i think that is going to cause a massive onset effect not just from the reaction within the planet's macro system or macro scale ecosystem and how it behaves and how it regulates itself, like with the North and South Pole and you know the Arctic uh, Arctic Circle and Antarctica. I think it's also going to have an effect with the moon. And I also think the moon's a bit more of a deeper conversation. I'm not gonna obviously go into now why, but I think it and I'm open to be challenged on that one. And I'll probably lose that one. But the sun itself and how the sun's going to behave because I have a weird suspicion and it's sort of thinking macro scale, way macro scale is because the sun rotates around the Milky way galaxy and you've got billions of stars within the Milky way galaxy that are all interacting with one another in some weird way that we can't like actually see with our own eyes, but is because it's all part of this greater sort of body when that changes its direction or alignment happening with the same time of the sort of shifting of the electromagnetic poles. And I think it will actually have an effect. And I wouldn't be surprised if it has an effect on the other, other, other planetary bodies that we have in our solar system as well. It's all gravity, man. It's all gravity, baby. And I think it will genuinely have like an impact on migration with birds and avian species It'll certainly have an impact in terms of climate. You'll probably have massive amounts of flooding, tectonic activity, a whole host of things will happen and you'll have hundreds of millions of people, maybe, maybe billions that'll end up being displaced and completely migrate from one continent, from maybe one side of the continent to the entirely other one. So maybe people from like Central Central Africa, right? Where there's hundreds of millions of people across Central Africa will end up having to move to the Northern side of Africa because now we've got, you know, jungle all of a sudden in northern Africa because the Saudis have been doing their cloud seeding operations to the 10th degree and they've just been letting rain go everywhere. And it's, Dude. anyway, that's a conversation for another time. Conversation <laughs>
1: next time. On that, I'm going to send you a link with an interview I did with David Dubine. He's a okay. gentleman who tracks um, Grand Solar Minimum. A lot Ooh. of what you've just said plays into the tectonic plates, the movements, where cultures were abundant and they weren't, and tracking that over time. We should have a threesome. Oh, I'd have to book him pretty far in advance, but that's fine. Listen to this podcast that I send. Well, I send Done. to you, and we'll chat about this next time. Personally, whatever happens, whether it's a rapture or a a war or whatever kind of end kind of comes for our kind of cycle, my greatest fear is I'm going to be too old to be able to do anything about it or care. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think. I think. So. Oh, I,
1: I think. I think maybe. I will care and that's what's going to be going to be the most harrowing thing because I'll care, but I won't have the physical ability or the, even the social standing to do anything about it to help or try and save yeah, people. fair.
0: Or you care now and you... Won't be listened to. Oh, well, I don't know about <laughs> that, but, you know, you know, like, oh, right, well, you know, my dream is to go and, like, buy a house somewhere, like, up in the mountains somewhere where, you know, I'm not subject to these events that have happened in history and can actually happen again floods yeah stuff like that so yeah, i mean you know. possible
1: well for people who do want to check out your content from india i know you're putting a lot of work in putting videos up and photos and all sorts of fantastic stuff like that um a lot of ancient structures and cave work which i do want to get into next time where yes. can
0: people find that work uh so it's just fozzy the aussie uh fozzy fo uh t-h-e-a-u-z-z-i-e um i've got twitter instagram and the youtube i've only got a few videos up on the youtube at the moment um i'm currently in the process of going through all my footage i've been doing like raw sort of edits on final cut pro of some of the footage so far and i've got so much more to go through in such a short amount of time because i am going to be going back to india very very soon um, so, I've got to get through all of this and chop it and load it up on YouTube and then just get it out the way. And it has been anxiety-inducing. But when it's up there, you'll see it on YouTube. Um, bro, it's been a pleasure, mate. Thanks for al- coming it's, on, it's, it's, always having a, it's always a pleasure having a conversation with you.
1: It is. We could talk for hours about random... For the listeners, either they would be very, very invested in this episode or they would have thought, these guys have jumped around so often, it's like the shotgun <laughs> approach. They're scattergunning it, talking about every topic they can within, what, nearly two hours now? Three hours? Oh,
0: look, we kept it pretty localised, I think. I, mean, I think we was... kept bringing it back enough for we it did. to work. We yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. So it was just it was just politics, a little bit of ancient history, and Jews. That was mainly it. <laughs> So, right. I enjoyed it I thoroughly enjoyed it man it was, uh, it was a pleasure and I, I look forward to the next one because yeah there's a lot to talk about there's a lot to talk about oh about mate sort of
1: there's experience. way too much to talk about when both yeah. of us get our minds together <laughs> <laughs> it's a dangerous Fantastic. combination yeah, but on that yeah. note everybody we'll catch you next time thanks mate
0: hey everybody it's closing time you all gotta go home but you can't stay here